Hey, everybody. Absolutely stunning news over here this week. We have a video version of this week's episode available on our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash late night. Go over there, sign up at any tier, and you'll have access to it. Once again, that's patreon.com slash late night. Now, enjoy the show. Brian, you're 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 like you're like sprightly this morning. Look at you. It's because I'm in a terrible mood. <laughs> so I'm I'm overcompensating somewhat. We had today, uh, you know, it, it, I'm sure you guys noticed it's raining, right? It's yeah. raining in the summer in LA, which is which is weird. And we were we took two weeks off sending uh, Audrey to camp, and today was going to be her first day back. Last week we didn't send her because they had a COVID case. And I was like, let's just give this some time to breathe and play out. The week before that was a family vacation. And I was like, yes, back at camp today. And then it was raining. And I was like, well, I'm not putting her indoors because that's, you know, <laughs> yeah. She's yeah, not vaccinated. And that's our rule is we're not doing indoor stuff with her. So at, we woke up early, early uh, and was like, all right, off to camp and then saw the weather forecast. And I was like, God fucking damn it. <laughs> you know, mainly because she needs to go to camp. Like she's she's yeah. been trapped up, cooped up with us for a while and hasn't really seen other kids her age for a couple of weeks. And I was very excited for her to get back. And, you know, well, that was it. So, so how, old, how old is she? She's seven. All right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I was very excited. I can't remember. Grant, do you have kids? Yeah. What, uh, son 18 and a daughter 15. Gotcha. Wow. So a little, yeah. little older than Audrey. Yeah. So they, uh, they spent the, they spent the entire last year from March to March out of school. That was yeah. an entire year off. Like you know, LV, LVUSD just shut down the whole thing. Yeah. yeah so yeah. they went back a little bit, like uh, maybe like January. I, th- I kind of feel they went in like every other day or something like that, but only for half a day. Yeah. It was super super sparse, you know. And they just sat online for the entire year. Yeah. Um, that's oh, that's so know. hard for teenagers too. Oh yeah, I mean, my son's last year at school. His, you know, his graduation was nothing happened. They did a, did a graduation, oh. but there's no, there's no prom. There was nothing fancy like you expect. You know, for like for us Brits, right? We don't do that whole prom thing, you know. So <laughs> for my son to for my son to experience that, I thought it'd be quite a big deal, you know. But it just unfortunately, it's never happened. He missed out his entire last year at high school, you know. That's such a bummer. Mm. Yeah. So it's interesting because we have a lot of parents on this show. I feel like we've had a lot of people with kids, but I feel like we haven't had anybody who has like teenage children versus Brian's seven-year-old. Right. Talk, talk yeah. about this. I, what did dads <laughs> talk about? I, I wrote a whole game about dads talking to each other, and I have no idea what the fuck they talk about. So I feel, well, I don't know. I'm curious. You always think to yourself, it's going to get easier the next sort of bracket of age, don't you? But it just, you just, always. It just, there's just new problems that just come up, prop up that are not there before, right? So yeah, the, you never really get out of it. No matter how old, it, no matter how old they are. Well, and in fact, I've heard the the mantra you hear sometimes. Uh, I'm curious if you've ever heard this: is little kids, little problems; big kids, big problems. <laughs> and it is true because you know, like at when they're little, little, nothing matters. You're just trying to keep them alive, right? You know, essentially before they're whatever four or five or something. It's just get from one day to the next and make sure this thing stays upright, uh, and then make sure it's laying down and sleeping. Yeah. Uh, and but when they're in elementary school, I mean, what what's the worst thing that happens? You know, they, oh, of course, look, there can be some bad stuff, but generally speaking, their issues are 
petty squabbles and yeah. nothing that serious, but I'm sure, I mean, well, once you move into junior high and high school, it's got like, there's some serious shit, I would think. Oh yeah. And I, I always feel like, you know, when you think to yourself, you can't wait for them to walk. It's like, oh, fantastic. But the minute they walk, they can just grab everything that's in at that height, right? So you've got to, you've got, you've got to move everything that, that was that low down. Oh, yep. So they can't grab it and, and swallow it or whatever, you know. Yeah. You're like, yeah. it's just, it's just, you think, oh my, I was so pleased when they walked and you were like, oh my God, I wish they were still crawling because then they can't touch this and break that and do that, you know. So it just, that's, that's the sort of thing, it just, you know, it's one of those things you kind of go, oh God, and why did yeah. that happen? And I think the whole, like, I think, especially having a, I guess like having a daughter like you, I feel like my son sort of just kind of sauntered, you know, went through school, everything was all right, but I think my daughter... I think the girls, I, I, I guess the, the whole friendship group thing is a big deal with the girls, right? And I think yeah. it yeah. does tend to be, it can be quite traumatic if that girl falls out with that girl and that girl doesn't like that girl. It's, you know, I feel like my son didn't really go through any of that. My daughter's been through a bit of that with the, you know, the friends group being, being absolutely the most important thing in her life, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> As a former teenage girl, I can attest to this. Uh, yeah, I feel like the first half of my teens, I just like didn't have any friends. And then I kind of got into the friend group of it all, having not really had the training wheels of like, oh, this is what a girlfriend group is like in middle school. Because I, right. I just like hung out with all the other kids who did not belong to another group, which would just be us sitting in a corner, like right. scheme, scheming, I guess. That was yeah. our bond, scheming. Uh, but yeah, and then high school with girlfriend groups, it's always just like, at the time, I mean, I'm I'm very young, so like, Social media was an element there, but I can't even imagine like now because when I was in oh. high school, I didn't. I had an Instagram that I never used. Like I wasn't on Twitter for a long time. Like, ooh, I cannot well, imagine how bad it must be at this precise moment. Yeah. In, in time. I, I can't Definitely. even imagine. You know, certainly Grant and I are both old enough that the statement of when I was in high school, I had an Instagram is like what. <laughs> like, oh, like, you know, that, the idea of social media even being a presence in the life of uh, a teenager is obviously, Grant, you, you've dealt with it. I'm going to have to deal with it. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like I am, I, I, I'm probably doing myself a disservice by saying totally unprepared, but I don't think much of a disservice. I feel very <laughs> unprepared for what a teenager's life on social media uh, is actually like. I know. I feel, I feel like you, I feel you feel like you get validated from social media in, mm -hmm. in, a, in a way, and I feel like yeah. that's really wrong. But you know, you, you, your kids put little posts on whatever it is, Twitter or well, Instagram, because Twitter's for the oldies, right? Right. And, you know, and I mean, it just takes one negative comment from somebody. And it's, you think, well, why did they say that? And you, you want to get involved and you can't. Yeah, there's the invisible passive aggression math. Yeah, that's definitely. Happening yeah. maybe yeah. to a greater degree, especially with social media is like, hey, are you already passive aggressive? Do you want to just right. like crank that up and be rewarded for it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, for are me, you... like, my, my daughter's like, you know, I, I say I'm a Brit, right? But she, was, she moved to America when, when she was two. So, but she's, she's, she's doing the cheerleading thing, right? You know, but someone oh, like, wow. like me who's a Brit, it's a bit like, you know, what is that all about? Like, you know, we just, you just, we, right. don't, we just really just don't have that really. And that, so she's, she's made tons of friends in the cheer and it's a great thing. And they've all, they all get along great. You know, I guess my kind of experience of cheerleading and stuff is like seeing the girls on Glee. For, for, for you, you know, our, Audrey, when we left uh, London, Audrey was 14 months old. So we had experience with nursery and that was it in terms of right. like having a kid there. So for in high school, what is, what is high school sport like for 
in the UK. I mean, obviously people are playing football and stuff like that. I imagine there's competitions, but I have literally no conception of what well, thing. I just think there's a whole scene, I would imagine. But like. Well, but the UK just doesn't take sport very seriously, generally speaking. Like, I think, you know, when we first moved to, we moved to Baltimore in 2008, and that's our first, you know, kind of, a, you know, kind of in, living in America properly. And mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, how serious parents take sport for the kids really young just absolutely we couldn't believe it It was bewildering like they just take it so seriously and like sports i mean i guess that's why america does so well at sport right because they take it really seriously like in britain no one really takes it that seriously i guess kids try to play football but that's probably about it yeah and then the real serious stuff happens with the professional teams right and that's where well i guess but but, i mean it's, it's still not to the level of here Nowhere near it. Really? Like, you, like no I mean, one, no one. You, you wonder why the UK doesn't do very well, generally speaking. That's because they don't take it very seriously. <laughs> you know, that, yeah. that's, you know, that's, you know, you, you think Wimbledon is, a, is a premier, the premier, you know, tennis tournament in the world, probably. Yeah. And the, and the Brits usually do terribly at it, you know. And you think, well, surely if we've got that fantastic <laughs> thing in the UK, wouldn't we all try, try a little bit harder? But yeah, like, yeah, yeah. No one, no one, it's not like that. Like, when I think back to me being in, in a school, like it, sport wasn't very serious. Like, you know, we all kind of had to do it because we had to do it, but no one took it very seriously. That's like here, people yeah. are already thinking about careers in sport at like eight years old, you know? Yeah, they're <laughs> trying to get like, how can I get scouted and recruited? And, yeah. Yeah, that's Crazy. That, that's true. Yeah, I, I was totally alienated, not alienated, just not involved in any kind of sports scene in England. We actually lived, the first year we lived in London, London, we lived in Islington, just down the road from Arsenal or Emirates right. Stadium, right? Is yeah. that what it is? Emirates Stadium? And that was <laughs> like, it was like, okay, don't use that tube stop on match days because you're, you know, you'll never, you'll never get in. But apart <laughs> from seeing those crowds, that that was literally my entire experience with, uh, w- with sports in England. I just had no clue what was what was going on. Yeah, but that's um, mostly it, right? The football in the UK is mostly it. Like, yeah. you think of all the other sports that go on, you know, yeah. all the track and field, all that stuff. It just doesn't get taken that seriously. Um, I did have a friend who was like, you have to go to Lords. One, just pick one short match uh, <laughs> to go to Lords uh, to see some cricket. And you, like, he's like, okay. This is a guy who was a, uh, a other faculty member at the university. Uh, British guy, and he's like, "Look, it sucks. It's not fun, but <laughs> you have to have this experience. It, it, like, you can't really say that you, we you lived in in England till you went to see one cricket match. We we never did it, unfortunately. We yeah, we had a kid pretty shortly after moving there. If yeah, I feel uh, like you're lucky not going because it is like the most boring sport in the world. Like, oh, it's terrible. It's just one guy takes a bowl, you wait another ten minutes to take the next bowl. Like, you know, like I can yeah. remember when I came to. Get, I get interviewed for the job in Baltimore. I remember they took me for a curry because I thought everyone in the UK eats curry, right? Because we all like curry. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, and I remember we were sat at the thing, it was like 10 of us around the table and all the kind of heads of the departments there to interview me. And I remember um, they were talking about baseball. And I said, you know, it's funny, like in the UK, you know, baseball is called rounders. It's only played by girls. And I thought it was a funny joke. And mm-hmm. it was just completely stony face, like no one laughed. <laughs> You know, like <laughs> I bet they mean? didn't understand it. Like, <laughs> uh, honestly, yeah. Um, what was the what was the job in uh, in Baltimore? That's an interesting introduction to the U.S. So yes, yeah, so it was. I went to be the audio director at Big Huge Games to do that game Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning. So I did that was that's when I went. I went there for that reason. Yeah. Uh, so I spent four years in Baltimore doing that until I went bust, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, so that, that, I went for that. But it was funny how like, no one smiled. It was like that, that, that really thing you think you, you try to be really friendly and in the interview and like crack a really good joke and like no one got it and like, what's he talking yeah. about? And some blocks <laughs> sort of said like, 
I'd like to see a girl hit a ball 95 miles an hour, something like that, you know. Whatever Re- they, oh, oh, it was that kind of reaction. Yeah, oh, yeah, like, yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm not getting oh. this job. <laughs> I feel like oh. that's an insane reaction. Like, yeah. who would say that? Yeah, that, and I was, bit, I was like, oh, my God, this is it. I'm, I just, just go home now, right? Just get on the plane and go back. Yeah. It stresses me out so bad when you get the wall. And it's like, hi, guys, I'm, I make jokes when I'm nervous. Give me, <laughs> yeah. give me like a little bit. Give me something. That's so I had, true. Yeah. I had one story I tried for years to get a reaction to because I thought it was so funny. And every time I told it, uh, people, people would give me the wall. So I'll tell you guys, because I, when I think of the wall, I think of this story. And this is a true story. This happened to me at a party in Boston. And... Uh, I was talking to this guy and like somehow it comes up that he makes all of his own furniture. Like this is, this is this dude's deal. He just makes all his own furniture. And I was like, oh, wow, man, that's, that, that's, that's really, that's, that's really interesting. What, what did you, what do you start with? Ta- tables, you know, beds, what do you do? And the guy's like, tables i haven't gotten to tables yet <laughs> that's the entire story yeah thank you okay it's weird right it's fun um so, yeah so what, I, do you start, so what do you start with then if you don't if it, what's first like just a leg just yeah a leg. <laughs> what, what, what's easier than a table maybe a bed but the, the beds are more complicated hold anyway. on no i i've i can't build shit and i build tables like tables are the, the easiest thing to build yes also like the table that you build will be a perfect table, even if it's the worst table you've ever seen. Because it's just like, I don't know, I made it. So automatically yeah. anything that goes on it is better, including I, my the, feet. The, the criteria for table are pretty much surface slightly raised. That's it. Like, yeah. The thing is, I've got to say yeah. that I, I really am the worst DIY man in the world. And I think my, my wife's <laughs> oh, constant same. disdain that yeah. I just, <laughs> you know, even get, get an Ikea stuff. The way we build stuff, I forget, is the way that she has instructions. It goes, put that in there, and I just do the manual part. I don't do the thinking part. She does the thinking part, and like, so, because I'm just, I'm just, I can do one thing. I can write music, and that is it. I'm hopeless at everything else. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the same. I'm the same thing. When Rachel and I, so we got married. She, she grew up Catholic, and we got married in a in a Catholic church, which means we had to do a pre-cana. I think I've talked about this on this show before, Layton. Do you remember this? Maybe. Do you know I, what this it's is, somehow Grant? news to no. me that Rachel is like Catholic. I didn't know this. Yeah, somehow. she. she I, I mean, she's not like a practicing Catholic right now, sure. but she she grew up Catholic, and her parents were extremely devout and extremely liberal. Like they're that late '60s Vatican II era Midwestern Catholic, where they are. You know, they were like flowers in your hair, you know, wreath of laurels at the wedding, like very hippie wow. Catholics in the late sixties. Um, and, uh, so we, but the deal is before you get married in a Catholic church, uh, you have to do, you basically have to go to this wedding class so that the priest can approve you to be married. And this is called a pre Cana because of the feast at Cana is a you know, big biblical wedding. Or, or something like that. I honestly, I should have done even the most basic amount of homework to understand why I was doing this. But I was just like, well, I want to marry Rachel. So <laughs> right. if we have to, <clears throat> we do it. But the point is that you go to this thing. We were living in Boston at the time, which is where we met. And we found the most liberal church in Boston, which actually turns out you think is a liberal city, except when it comes to Catholicism. Then it's quite 
rigidly conservative, which well, because of the Irish, right? Because of the Irish in Boston, right? That, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, absolutely. <clears throat> but there was a, a liberal uh, church right in Boston Common, the Paulus Center, and we went to there to do wedding classes. And it's a full weekend where you sit down and you have to. It's it, like I was expecting this to be the most bullshitty bullshit that ever bullshitted, and it was kind of awesome because you sit down. Uh, they separate you, by the way, into people, Catholics marrying Catholics and Catholics marrying non-Catholics. Because if you're double Catholic, you kind of know what you're in for. If you're half Catholic, then like your partner really doesn't probably know a lot about it. So we Go got into the Catholic. in the half-cast corner. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and what they made you do is they made you sit down and fill out like Cosmo, like Cosmo magazine style quizzes about every single fucking thing in your relationship. So there was, and it's at the time, so this is uh, late 2000s in Boston. Everyone there, it was just uh, male, female partners. I don't believe the, I don't even know if you can get married to, they do same-sex marriage in the church. Anyway, it was all men and women, uh, men marrying women, women marrying men. And the, the quizzes we had to fill out were, it, it, there were two columns. It was man, and woman, and then a list of duties like house cleaning, childcare, <laughs> uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you had to go down. This is one of like 300 exercises we had to do. You had to go down and check off each column, one or more things in each column for who is responsible for this. So who is responsible for house cleaning? Man, woman, both, or what? Or neither. And... <laughs> For uh, there's a long story leading up to the DIY thing, but there was one which was home repair. And for that, I created a third column, which was call a guy. (laughs) (laughs) And it was the only entry that we checked off call a guy because I can do absolutely nothing. It is an accomplishment. When I nail, when I hang up a picture, I feel a sense of accomplishment. Right. As you should. That's about the extent of it. It's funny about the, talking about the wedding thing. Like well, friend, friends of mine in the UK, the 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 the, the girl was um, I think she was Protestant I think, but he was uh, Irish Catholic, and so the parents got into quite an argument about where they were going to get married about you know because they wanted to be so that they agreed to have a, a, a wedding in a church and but they had to have the Irish guy come in and the Catholic guy and do a bit with the other guy. It was all a big big, big maneuver to try and appease everybody, mm-hmm. you know. And I just thought it's such a faff. Like me and my wife are both atheists, atheists so we just got married in a in the UK. You just get, you can get married anywhere you like, long as it's licensed. Yeah, yeah. So we just got married in a licensed place that, and we just, there was no religious religious part to the ceremony at all. It was just basically tell a couple of stories, have a bit of a laugh, sign the book, and then you were done, right? You know. Yep. Um, and so I was kind of glad that we didn't get involved in any of that sort of stuff because I just thought it's such a it seems like such a minefield to navigate if oh, you have yeah. different religions. You know, it seems like how how do you fix that? You know. Yeah, we, we had to sign a uh, – <laughs> there, there were forms for non-Catholics to sign. And if you were a Christian, if you, like if you identified as any kind of Christian but were not Catholic, you had to sign a form that was called a dispensation of cult. Oh. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. But, okay, here, here's, <laughs> the, here's the really amazing part about this thing, which was – at this one thing, I was like, okay, this is why this is actually worth it. If it's done in a reasonable way is at the very, so you go through this whole thing with like, 
I don't, let's say where there were 30 other couples there ish. And at the end, the priest, and I know I've talked about this on the podcast, the guy who was leading this was a resident sexpert for the Catholic Church, and his name was <laughs> Father Dick Sparks. <laughs> I have definitely talked about this guy on the show. He's like this, I'd say he was in his late 60s or so, short little rotund guy, Bald, mostly bald, like a ring of white hair around his ears, little glasses. Very, very sweet man. Like he, he was, he was great. And he was, he wrote a column about sex in some Catholic magazine. And anyway, at the end of, you go through all these quizzes and then the last like half day or so, uh, Father Sparks pulls each couple aside and takes them up to his office, which by the way, was filled with Western stuff. This guy was obsessed with Westerns. And so he had like all this cowboy stuff all over. Um, and what he did was he, one at a time, he would bring you into his office and he'd say, okay, you know, when it was me and Rachel, he's like, okay, Rachel, you wait out there. I'm going to talk to Brian. And so brings me into his office and he's like, okay, look, here's what I'm doing right now. I need to know that you want to be married to this person. I can say, if I say no, the Catholic church will not marry you. This is wow. your opportunity to get out of this. If you want to get out of this, and I won't say that you said, I want out, I'll come up with whatever reason, but if you feel like you're being pressured into this and you don't want to do it, tell me now so I don't approve this. Father and, Dick Sparks's get out of jail free card. Yeah, right? that's crazy. It, it, and I can only, I mean, I feel like this is, it'd be like a lifesaver to, I mean, I would imagine this would happen more to women than than men women who felt pressured to to marry someone they didn't want to marry yeah. and could say, look, I actually, I really don't want to go through with this. Let's figure out a, uh, an out. Like, wow. what a great thing to have. Like this, this. It's a wonderful bro cord. move, you know? Yeah. yeah, and, yeah and, and this guy was, he is clearly, his heart was in the right place. Like he wasn't going to turn around and, and pull any bullshit. He was really, really great. Um and like, I, I was like, okay, this may, a, it's good to talk about all these issues. Like who's going to handle what, but also this, like, actually, do you really want to go through with this and tell me now? Cause I can like cut it here. Yeah. What, what a great idea. That almost, that almost sounds like the, uh, you know, when you get, uh, uh, somebody outside of the U S marrying, marrying somebody in the U S and then try to be a citizen. You have to yeah, get yeah. To, that, to that interview and you get, you get yes. questions like, do you yeah. know what his favorite color is or what the birth uh, to make sure that you're not just doing it to get into the country? Yeah. yeah, it yeah. Almost, it, It's almost like that, right? Yes. Yeah. And in fact, he, you know, he, he then after the, uh, uh, individuals, he then interviews the couple together and because he also can say no, just if he feels like it's not, you know, he's obviously he wasn't going to be capricious about it, but you know, if he could sense there was something really problematic happening, this guy had, you know, I got the sense he would have no problem being like, I don't think you guys should do this. So I wonder yeah, how many times he actually just say no. I mean, how many times do you think he would say no? I wonder. We we asked we we asked him. We were like, do you ever say no? And he's like, all the time. Really? He's oh, like, this, wow. This, yeah. He's like, I don't do it lightly because I don't. I you know, I only do it if I feel like I have to. But like, it's pretty regular. If only there that was more of a standard thing of just somebody who can look at it and be like. Why are you getting married? No, no, no. Just, I feel like that would help. Yeah. God. I, I'm, totally. I, I must admit, I, I found that a bit unexpected. I kind of thought it was just like a rubber stamp sort of thing, you know, like more or less, you know. 
Yeah, well, I'm sure some people do it. You know, I don't know how the general thing is. I, you know, obviously I just have the one uh, data point, but this guy took it seriously. A anyway, I did want to ask, so we very seldom do like interview, interview questions, Grant, but I, I feel like we have to talk about music at least a little bit or people <laughs> will be uh, uh, upset. So I want to hear, well, like, I don't know. So tell me, what, what was your like, training background all that sort of stuff obviously you know how did you what is what were your early days in like as a musician like? so i just remember like being four years old and they're being around a recorder at school you know the recorder you know I think. Yeah, yeah and um i put my hand up for i didn't really know what it was and just chose to play it was 15 shillings it was in yep. those days <laughs> in, the, in the good old days and then yeah. about i was about six or seven and they brought around a corner in like a shopping bag and said he wants to play this i got my hand up first and played that yeah so i did plus i did proper classical trumpet you know, training through school. And I started playing guitar, like self-taught kind of guitar about 11 or 12. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of metal guitar player. That's what I wanted to do. And trumpet, just because I was good at it, really. <clears throat> I went all the way through school, um, played in metal bands, you know, and played in um, the local orchestras and all that kind of stuff. And were you, were you write, writing at this time too? No, 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 not at all. Just playing. Yeah. So and I, I, went, I chose to go to the Roll on the College of Music in Manchester. Mm -hmm. um, there's like five conservatoires in the UK. That's one of them. Yeah. Um, to do proper trumpet, four-year degree thing. Oh, you you had a degree in in trumpet. You went for a yes. degree in trumpet. Yeah, so yeah. It's, yeah, you do you do like academic stuff too, but you're there to to play the instrument, right? Yeah. So, but I just wanted to be in Judas Priest or I made or something. That's all I wanted. <laughs> I had yeah. long hair, and that, that, I didn't really. I, I did. So I went to university because um, it was four years without getting a job, right? Just extra four right. years to mess around, really. So yep. and I and then I would imagine it was totally free in the UK, right? You didn't have to really pay for well, it yeah my day you got a full grant yeah it's that's right yeah. grant, ironically um so yeah, yeah. so even <laughs> yeah you did that yeah so and then i finished that and then sort of signed on to unemployment they call it the dole in the uk you know yeah um and i suppose i spent the next 11 years signing on and off the dole playing in some bands i was doing local band stuff you know in pubs just playing just covers gigging where you could yeah, and I was, I was playing, the, I played in a band called Zoot and the Roots, which is quite a big band in the UK. They were kind of big uni band, did some TV stuff, like a soul funk band. I was playing trumpet for them. And okay. I played in metal bands all the time. Then I joined a, a band called Little Angels, who were quite a big UK rock band, they had a num number one album in the UK. We did like proper tours. We supported Van Halen and um, uh, Bon Jovi. Oh, wow. like six, we did, did like wow. six week tours of like Europe with Bon Jovi, like, playing these gigantic stadiums to 90,000 people. It was amazing. That's incredible. Yeah, and did Van Halen gigs. Eddie Van Halen gave me a guitar because, uh, you know, he's a, he's a he, he, complete hero of mine. That I mean, to meet, as a guitar player, to meet Eddie Van Halen, and we spent six weeks on tour with them. And he was the nicest man in the world. I don't exaggerate. He was super, super nice. Yeah. And he gave me a guitar, all that stuff. Like, unbelievable. You know, I was in tears, etc. And then I, I guess I'd done that, as I say, for about 11 years, and it kind of all came to an end. The Little Angels kind of split up, and the big touring went away, and I was back to playing in covers of bands, you know, at home. You know, scraping a living, living, still living at home with my mother at 33, mm -hmm. 32. So, and then my mate called Robin Beanland, who was a keyboard player in one of the local bands that I worked for, like announced he'd got a job. And I was like, you know, knowing that I knew got a job, we all spent time on unemployment, playing in bands or whatever. And he said, I've got to go and work at Rare, write music for video games. I was like, oh, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> and I played a lot of games at the time, but I never really thought about it. And also, I was, t I was terrible. At, I, I failed the harmony exam at, at, the, at college three years out of four. I was so uh -huh. bad at harmony. I was terrible at harmony. I only scraped by the last year by skin of my teeth. So he'd been at Rare about a year and a half. And Robin said to well, me, cause, no, wait, so, so did you have to, with the harmony, you had to do all that like bullshit counterpoint stuff? Yeah, oh yeah, and, totally. Like, like the, full, like, yeah, the like you have to learn. Box style. Yeah, yeah, back growls, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. So Wait, ex- ex- explain this. I know nothing about this. Can you give me so like you a TLDR? There's a thing called Bach Chorales, and Bach's kind of held as, a, as the best four-part harmony writer forever, right? So, like, you know, soprano, mm-hmm. alto, tenor, bass, like four parts. So you had to learn to write in the style of Bach, really. He was kind yeah. of the, always held up as a standard, and I found that so hard, and, like, all the cadences and the chords. Because there, there are also rules. This, this is oh, the yeah, thing that I totally. think a lot of people... You know, if, if you haven't trained this specific thing, so I had to do this uh, for some, you know, like theory classes as well. Like once they give you the starting notes and, and then a little map of where to go, there's like a right answer pretty much. Right. Yeah. You know, and it's not like there's a little bit of judgment call you can do here and there. But w- with enough information, it like it's clearly like they just want you to kind of obey the rules and yeah. write the thing down. And none of these, like you can sort of see why the rules make sense, but they don't really, and nobody cares. And if you didn't follow them, it's totally irrelevant. Yeah. Like that uh, whole thing about consecutive fifths, right? You can't have consecutive yes. fifths. And it's a bit like, you know, no one in the audience hears if they're in a concert, hears consecutive fifths. Like no one that's gives right. a shit. Like, well, no also, one, yeah. and as, as a metal person, you're just fucking playing power chords half the time, too, <laughs> know, right, yeah. which are just playing fifths. fifths all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it, just it's, fifths, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, it's, yeah, it's I, I totally found that. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'd like to do figured bass, and I kind of thought, that just sort of shows you what to write. So, do you just, what's the point of that? You know, so anyway, I was just bad at it. I just really didn't get it. And I had a really co- kind of whiz kid teacher who was brilliant, but I couldn't understand him at all. So... I just scraped by and they in my teeth in the last year to pass the exam. And so, as I said, my mate Robin said to me, you've been on the door 30, 11 years, you know, don't you think it's time you got a job? And I was like, well, what can I do? I, you know, I can't do anything apart from play guitar, really, on trumpet. So he said, well, why don't you try writing, you know, music for video games? I said, well, I, I could have a go, you know, but I've, re- I've played a lot of games at the time, but I never thought I could be a composer ever because I was crap at it. So he said, well, he recommended some gear, but a copy of Cubase, a synth module, bits and pieces, you know, Atari ST with a Mega RAM, because it was Mega RAM then, you know. Yeah. Um, and then I set about writing music that I thought was appropriate for video games. It was, must have been 1994. And I sent Rare five cassette tapes over the course of that year. Never got a reply. And that just like cold, cold calling, essentially. Yeah, just because like, he yeah. was there. I thought, well, I'm, you know, he's at Rare. I'm, I'm going to be at Rare. You know, I had no idea how hard it would be. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And just sent a five cassette takes off and they eventually replied and said, come for an interview. And Dave Wise interviewed me and I got the job. Couldn't believe it. So <laughs> my first job at 33, left my mother behind, went to move down to, to, to where Ray was in the Midlands in the UK. It's in, near Birmingham, well, in, it's near Leicester, Leicestershire. Uh, and so um, that was it. Started there. No idea really how hard it would be or anything like that. And an absolute fluke. So if Robin had never done it and suggested it, I would never have done it. It was like yeah. never, I never, ever once thought about writing music ever. I'm still quite, I'm still amazed, honestly, that I can, I can do it really, because I was so bad at it, I can't believe it. Yeah, I, I, I kind of feel the same way. Like, every time, I, I don't know how, how you, okay, every time <clears> I write <throat> a piece of music that I like, I listen to it, and I'm like, how the fuck did I do that? And also, I'm never going to be able to do that again. <laughs> like, it's it's like, that was cool, but I feel like it was, you know, I know theory and stuff, like, I, I'm, I'm, my original training is, is classical and jazz so i can like hack the theory stuff but uh i yeah i'm just like i don't know what i'm doing Uh, okay blah 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 sure okay that's uh, yeah that sounded cool all right i I guess i can justify this to some extent but everything i write feels like whoa how did that work 
I know. I, I mean, do you know any musicians who are like, I completely know what I'm doing? I feel like every artist and musician I know is just like, ah, I, I don't know how this happened. Yeah, like, I, th- I just yeah. tripped and then I here's the right. thing. Yeah, yeah. I feel like all the best ones. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I kind of feel like, you know, starting a new project, I always think I, know, I can never do it. I always think I'm never going to do it. You look at a blank, look yep. at the page of Pro Tools and go, you know, what am I going to do? I haven't got a clue. Like when I got the Mario Rabbids gig, like, you know, a few years ago, and I got it again, you know, just a few months ago. I always think to myself, like, getting a gig like that, how on earth am I going to write music for Mario? Because Koji Kondo's amazing, and I'm not. Yeah. Like, and, like, how on earth am I going to do it? And you just, you, you can't believe you're ever going to do it. And I, yeah. and I keep, you know, you know I, get, I do interviews all the time where people say, well, how do you do it? And I always say, well, you just take one step at a time and, you know, don't look at the mountain, look at the next step and all that, which, you know, is true. Yes. But I don't know if I do that. <laughs> I just kind of panic <laughs> and go, it's, it's, just, it's just too hard, you know. And I guess the same as you, you load up a sample on the keyboard or whatever it is and start messing around with a French horn or a clarinet or whatever it is and you just get a tune or a set of chords that you like. I always feel like I'm not yeah. really a very intellectual composer. I'm not kind of the kind of, I'm not a pontificator. I'm just, yeah, a work, I'm just workman-like. I, th- I feel like being at Rare for 12 years as a staff composer, you got used to sort of turning up in the morning, it's a nine-to-five job, right? So you start writing music at nine, finish at five, go home, have dinner and come back and do it the next day. So I yep. think it's a great regime to get into. I'm not a kind of a sit in the darkened room and wait for the hand of the Lord to hand me a song. It's oh, not like that. That's I a great way to get. It. Yeah, I, I'm just completely workman-like. I just sit at it until I get something. Yeah, that's. I, I always think of uh, John Cheever, the author, who among... Uh, okay, the guy had some personal problems, but he was one of those old school writers who would, you know, put on the bow tie, put on the jacket, sit down at 8 a.m. and write for eight hours a day and then get up and be like, all right, time to get drunk. <laughs> and then, you know, <laughs> like, uh, it's, you know, there, there, there's this school of, of thought, which I think is very effective, which is just like, all right, this is it's a nine to five and I'm treating it like that. I, I, I am not like that. I wish I was more like that. Um, but I, I, I love it. It's, it. It is a way to get a lot of great stuff done. Treat it like yeah, a job. Yeah, I, I just feel like I know that I work best like at 9.45, 8.45 till like one or two in the afternoon and I'm a bit crap because I'm tired and sleepy. And I yep. can do a bit more at night if, I'm got, if I'm really busy. But I just think you get you know when you write, you write your be- when you write best, right? And I think you know. And John Williams is you know my massive hero. He says write something every day, good or bad. You know if it's crap, yep. it's crap. You know, yeah, but at least get, right. get in the habit of just producing something when you have to. Especially by what the job that I do as a, like I'm, as a you know media composer. Like yeah. you know you have to be prepared to do it quickly and get on with it. People haven't got time for you to mess around. I think if you write your own symphony or whatever, you can take years over it. Great, it's up to you. But when yeah. you get someone paying you, you're on, you're on the clock. I want this game out or, or a movie, or whatever it is, by this time. You just got to yeah. get on with it. You got to get used did, to making yourself be productive. Did you? So I would imagine you didn't study like production or electronic music too much or anything like that. It's kind of learn as you go. Was that the case? Yeah, for, I didn't study anything. Yeah, I didn't study, like, I didn't study I just, nothing. I, did, I, mean, I just, you know, when I first got to Rare, I got that synth to, to work on the year before I worked, went to Rare. But apart from that, yeah. that was it. I just played yep. trumpet and, and metal guitar. That was it. So, yeah, you know, same. you just. I don't know, you know, I kind of, you know, when I talk to people, they, they'll say, well, how, you know, what do you do? How do you do it? Or what do you do? I'll say, look, you know, just go out and buy the synth and mess around with it. There's no rules. Just do what you want. That, like, that's, it, you know, I, and it's amazing. I, I, how you can, I can, sorry, but you can go out and buy these great, huge, bloody orchestral libraries now, like the Spitfire yeah. library that I use, you know, and people can sit there and mess around with a live orchestra. Like, you know, yeah. I, I know it's a, it's a thousand books. It's a lot of money, but, you know, you know, you really can just buy that thing have it on your computer and mess around with real live people 
and you yep. can find out what an orchestra sounds like, and you can do what you like with it. I mean, you know, when I first started, that was just unheard of. You just couldn't do that. So no, it's amazing, right. you know, today. Yeah, they, I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, though. There are no rules. Like, this is something I feel like I have to tell myself every day there are no rules. If it sounds good and I like it, that's good enough. Because I, I, I constantly have this thing where I'm like, I feel like I'm doing it wrong. Right. And there is no wrong. Who the fuck cares about wrong? It doesn't exist. Mm. Um, th there might be people who don't like the way you do it. In fact, there will be people who don't like what you do. But that's not because you're doing something objectively wrong. Like, I have to tell my, remind myself every day there is no right and wrong. There's just how you make a thing. And yeah, and I think I think when you're when yeah. you're when you're writing for music for yourself, right? You can do whatever you want. You can, yep. you can do you can make it out of fart. So you gives a shit like you do what you want. I kind of feel like when I'm working for somebody else, I have to do what they want because yep. I'm at some economic living. If they don't like it, they're going to defy me and find somebody else. So yep. you have to you have to learn to be. You know, I think composers a lot of the time want to do it the way they want to do it. And like I don't want talking about you're talking nonsense. But when you work for somebody else, you can't be like that. That's right. You have to be amicable and say, yeah, I'll change it. No worries. Even though you don't want to do it, you've, you've got and, to do it, right? You know. And you also don't probably, they, they don't know what language to use to give the note that they're giving. Right. And you don't really know what they're talking about. I mean, you know, it's kind of the graphic design uh, disease as well, where someone's like, yeah. you know, can you just make this like oomphier? And you're like, <laughs> what? I know. You know, yeah. So I'd imagine, is, is that a thing for you where people give you notes all the time? You're like, okay, I have to figure out what they mean. Well, I think, I think I've done it for like 25 years just now, whatever it is. I feel like yeah. I've learned now the way to do it. And the way I get around that is like, when you talk to a creative director who's music musical, I mean, most people are musical, you know, right. not like that. I'll say, look, you know, you know, tell me a movie scene that you think is right. um, in, the set, mm. in, that, in that direction or send me an mp3 file of a, a song or a tune or a YouTube link that you think is in the right, so it points you in the right, at least you get the right direction, right? I, feel, yeah. I kind of feel like the worst person to work for is a guy that kind of goes, you know, I don't know what I want, but I know it when I hear it. Oh. Like, so you, yeah. you could spend yeah. the next 50 years writing that piece of music, right? I never quite get there because he hasn't given you any clues whatsoever. So yeah. I always try and get clues. I mean, you know, I, you know working for the, the Mario guys in, in Ubisoft Milan and Paris, like, you know, they speak great English, but sometimes they'll get the wrong word, okay? And I've, I've, I've got caught out a couple of times on the wrong word, that they mm -hmm. mean something that, that they mean, they think it means something that I don't. Mm -hmm. um, but generally speaking, you know, as long as you get that kind of youtube movie reference thing working as, as a common language, that, that, get, that gets around music. I mean, I don't know what to do about animation or, or graphics or, or that, cause different, I don't understand that at all. But I think musically, I think you can use other music as a, as a, yeah. a pointer, you know? Do you find that people ever get too like too obsessed with the the style comps, where they're like, "Oh, this is actually like this is really what we want is is this thing," and then you give them something that's like in that direction. I know this happens in film a lot, where yeah, that's, they'll have yeah, some it's temp called, it's thing called, in there. And yeah, like, yeah, it's, that, it's called temp love. So they yeah. put in temp, they put in a temp soundtrack to, in the in the movie for to, to, to you know like a Hans Zimmer track or whatever it is as as, they, as they're making it, and then yeah. they just fall in love with that soundtrack, and of course they can't have, they can't have that soundtrack; it's already out, right? So they can't. We want it like this, and you, you can't get too close. You're going to get sued, right? Right. You know. So um, I do come across that. You just have to do your best. You know what can you do? You know. Um, I, I think temp soundtracks can be massively frustrating for composers because because you have to yes. try and write like it. Um, so. Yeah, I totally get that. I mean, you know, what do you do? You just have yeah, to do that. You just kind of, yeah, just, just keep, keep trying.
Yeah. I mean, that's that's the danger of all like necessary temp stuff in anything, whether it's like art or designing a video game where it's like, OK, we're going to put this stupid asset in that has a stupid joke on it because we mean for this to be a placeholder. But we have to be OK with it if at some point this ends up in the game because we just simply did not have the time to fix it or do a new thing like you, you end up falling back on a lot of really dumb early temp decisions sometimes because it's just like, yeah, fuck it. I don't know. The, yeah. This character's name is this right. yeah I get, um, yeah and i kind of feel that the higher up the ladder you get into the echelons of the executive kind of thing they're just all shit scared of making a mistake and it, and it going wrong yes. and losing, losing loads of money so that's right they wanted to play yeah. it safe they don't want to have any risks or they want it to all to be and like that's why i feel like things get watered down you know eventually to some kind of oh, watered yeah. down shit that no one really likes that much i kind of feel like you make something by by like like a democratic decision amongst lots and lots of people where I don't think that yeah. works that way. You, the best way to work... Yeah, is, stuff being focus tested yeah, to death. Yeah, it's that kind of focus group. You want that, you want that director at the top who goes, this is my rainbow. Well, you're welcome to ride it, but it's my rainbow. And, you, yep. know, and, you know, he makes your decisions and, he, and, and you live or die by it, right? And I feel like the best things are made like that, not by focus group, but by someone who's got a really strong vision about something, wrong or right, you know. I kind of feel like when I was back at Rare... That's what it was like. You had people with really strong visions about stuff. I like, you know, yeah. doing, I say doing the Mario game with David Soliani. He's got a really strong vision about how the game should be, and it turned out great, right? Mm-hmm. It's the guys that are a bit wishy-washy, or it's very corporate-y, where it's all a bit, you know, it, it, everyone kind of likes it a little bit, but no one likes it lots. Yeah. You know, where right. yeah. when you get a real strong director or whatever it is at the top who's not scared to make a mistake, that, yeah. that's, that, that's the people that I like the best, because you, know, you really feel that you've got something a real vision kind of thing, like, not like some wishy-washy nonsense that just gets nowhere. You know? It's just, it's all about just making yeah. confident choices. And as long as you do something deliberately and stick to it, like what else can you, what else can you do? You know? Yeah. And then and it, have, have someone have, be open to someone being like, not that. All right. Back to the drawing board. Try it again. Yeah. But yeah, it's yeah, better I don't than mind being that. I, 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 I like strong direction. I really like people to have strong ideas about stuff. I like, I like it that way. I like it's better for me to have someone that goes, "I want it to be like this." You know. Yeah. Um, I like it like that. How um, often are, are you working with live musicians as opposed to uh, mostly digital? So it just depends on what the budget is. It, you know, like on the I keep mentioning Mario again, but the last one with that, the Mario Rabbids Kingdom Battle, we did like fifty minutes live orchestra, something yeah. like that. But like you know, Civilization games, that was all live orchestra. Um, Kingdoms yeah. of was all live orchestra. Banjo Kazunets and Bolts were all live orchestra. Vivi Pinata was all live orchestra. So and are you are you arranging it your, yourself? Are you preparing the scores and stuff? Or, or so do you? I guess because I am with... classically trained. I do my kind of Pro Tools sessions are laid out in score order, like you know piccolo, flute, clarinet, oboe, like in the light in the right thing. But yeah. I use an orchestrator to turn it into actual music. Yeah. Um, I could do it, but it's 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 laborious, and I haven't got the time. When and it's are, when you're getting, through, getting through stuff, so you've got an, you give the orchestrator a MIDI file that's got all the yeah. information and an MP3 right. so you can hear what it sounds like, you know, and then they, and they'll turn it into uh, proper parts for the orchestra. And, and the orchestrator will also uh, or add arrangement to it as as necessary, or you want them to be pretty uh, so, close yeah, to So yeah, so I guess original. the orchestrator could take a piano piece and turn it into an orchestra if they wanted, if you wanted to. Like I, right. I'm pretty, I guess I'm. I ho- hopefully, I know what I'm doing. Yeah. So usually, the orchestrator just does what I, what I do. They don't add anything really. Um, yeah. Because I might say occasionally we think the bas- the bassoon chord is a bit too close together. Maybe you could, sp- you know, I guess th- th- things like that. But yeah. um, 
generally speaking, if you my MIDI files, if you heard my, my MIDI arrangements are exactly like the orchestral version. Oh, that's difference. great, yeah. And I think that's, different people just work differently, right? You yeah. know, some, some yeah. composers will just kind of have a few little parts here and then turn it over to someone and be like, okay, you take this and do your thing with it. Yeah, other people I guess because I spent that. so many years, those four years at college, listening to the college orchestra. Like, you know, I wasn't really that keen to be in music college. It was all right. I wanted to be in a metal band, really. Yeah. Um, but, like, the, my biggest takeaway from that is, like, listen to the college orchestra rehearse every Tuesday and Thursday morning between 10 and 1, or 9 yeah. and 1, whatever it was. And I just listened to... I didn't miss it in four, any day in four years. I was there every Tuesday and Thursday. Yeah. Listen to the rehearse stuff, playing some great stuff that I, that I really liked, you know. And so I feel like that's, my, that's what I, that I got from music college was that thing. Yeah. So, and, uh, so I, and also as a kid sitting in orchestras, playing in orchestras, you know what they sound like, right? So yeah, yeah. when I made the jump from being, you know, to my first like, orchestral game kind of thing, it wasn't that big a deal for me. I kind of felt like I, I knew what it's, what it's supposed to sound like, you know? Yeah. One, one of the most uh, useful things I ever did in college was that for my last two years, junior and senior year, uh, we had a, there was a professional orchestra, which occasionally I would play saxophone in when they needed a sax player. And then there was an all student orchestra and I was the sole conductor for that for two years. Awesome. And so that was picking the pieces, you know, rehearsing it, like really going into it. And, uh, I tried to do, you know, repertory stuff and then some more modern stuff. And we had a few student composers and it was just so, like so great to just sit down with the score and really, you know, to prepare a score for rehearsal is such, especially when something you didn't write. And so you have to like figure what the fuck is going on. It, it's, it, it was so useful. And I mean, it's not the same as, you know, really studying orchestration, but it's pretty close to it. That sounds like it has to be like Im immensely satisfying to take from, you know, paper to like, oh, wow, real life people playing this. Oh, it's amazing. Like, yeah, I, you know, yeah. I, I always think the first game I did orchestra was like um, Viva Pinata. And, you know, you, I spend, you spend most of the time in tears, really, because you can't believe people are actually <laughs> playing your music, you know. And, like, and also, yeah. you know, when, when human beings play the thing you've written, like, they do stuff that just human beings do things naturally that fades up and a bit louder, and a bit quieter as they play. It, you know, things that human beings just yeah. naturally feel. Like, you have to try and get that to the midi parts and, you know, join in... Velocity it's such a pain in the stuff. ass. Yeah, I like when, but a human being yeah. just does it without in the sleep, you know. So that's that's the special part about having like players. They just naturally phrase things like human beings do, you know. It, it seems to be it's built in almost, you know. So that's yeah, that's properly fantastic. And I think as a composer, if someone's playing your stuff, you, that that is just the best. And I don't think there's a, for me, it's not a better experience in the world than that. That is like no, absolutely nothing beats that. Yeah, amazing to see, and then. Just to, to to see the final product just put down, you're like real human beings played this and it got recorded and it's actually a product and, you know, it's in this game or it's on this album or whatever. I think that's that's incredible. But yeah, to me, every time it's like, oh, even even not with an orchestra, I mean, orchestra is a whole other amazing thing, even when there's just like two people playing it, like something I wrote. I'm like, oh, my God, this is incredible. <laughs> what? They're doing it? And they're doing it, you know, and these guys are crushing it. How is that possible? Mm. Uh, it, it, it never, never, ever gets old to me. No, is, never. No. And I would sort of yeah. say, you know, for any artist of any persuasion, a writer, photographer, musician, whatever it is, for someone else to like something that come out of your head, you know, if it's one person in the world, that's, that's spectacular. It, it just in its own right, just, you know, that thing you thought of and wrote down or drew or, uh, you know, composed, whatever it is, and someone yeah. else likes it and really gets off on it, you know, like, 
you know, what's one person? Uh, I, I just think that's that's so special, you know. Yeah, I, I'm curious uh, to to step away from the composition stuff for a, a moment. What? So we we with Audrey right now. I just about the age COVID threw this all for a loop. We're really going to start, you know, music lessons with her. She right. definitely has a musical brain, but yeah. So we, I would have started piano a year ago, but blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm curious, what did you do with your kids and, and music? So I didn't get involved in that at all. I kind of felt like they need to make, find their own path. Uh-huh. So they both ironically, chose to play trumpet in the school band, right? My, my, my <laughs> really? Max and, and Holly, my <laughs> daughter, chose to play trumpet. That's and, so cute. You know, yeah, which is bizarre. I, I didn't, I had no input in it whatsoever. Um, and this is like at 10-ish, they're picking up an instrument or earlier? Uh, or, I feel or later than that. I feel like... Later. Uh, no, maybe, yeah, I guess around there somewhere. Yeah, I guess. I think fourth grade was what it was for me. It was recorder in third grade and then right. real, real instrument. Sorry, recorder people. It's a real instrument, but <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean. Uh, the recorder community is going to come for yeah, us on that the, one. The recorder right? guys Believe are right. me, <laughs> there is one. We pissed off recorder Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do? Two dads? Yeah. Uh, Hot cross buns us to get to death? <laughs> well, that tremendously unfair laden. Anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, so but, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, I tried to do for it and then went way harder <laughs> on it, so <laughs> forgive me. No, so they both tried trumpet, but they both gave up after about mm-hmm. a couple of years. And, you know, I've got to say, I was secretly pleased that neither of them are particularly musical. Just oh, really? Because, yeah, just because I know how hard it is to make a living. I guess you too, how to, how to make a living out of music. It's very hard. And I've yeah. been very lucky. And I feel like, like all my friends I knew from my band days, they're still playing in covers bands back in the town in, in, Harrog- in, uh, in, in the UK, still doing the same thing, old shit that I used to be doing in, in, the, you know, in the 50s. And I, keep, I kind of feel like I was just destined to be that, that homeless guy at some point, I kind of felt like. And I just fell into composing by, by accident. So I was kind of secretly pleased I didn't want to do it. And I kind of feel like, I thought if my son wants to play in a band, all right. But I kind of thought, if my daughter does, like, you know, usually, you know, people go into bands and run away and leave home and go and do band things. And I, don't, I didn't want my daughter to do that. So I kind of secretly pleased that neither of them got involved in it at all. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, but I guess, you know, but I've, I've got other friends who are musical who were really pleased that the kids are musical. Um, so it's something to say it skips a generation. So maybe my kids' kids will be musical. You know, <laughs> yeah. it sometimes skips, doesn't it? Um, you know. I feel like with Audrey, I definitely want her to to take lessons. A because she clearly wants to. I mean, that's that's the biggest thing. That yeah, that's the number one thing. Yeah. But I, I'm also very. I don't want to say keen on, but I, I would absolutely discourage her from doing music or art as a career unless she feels like she has to do it. And then that's right. a different story. If, if, that, if she's like, this is my everything, I have to do it, great. But the thing I want to discourage is like, yeah, I guess I kind of like music. I guess I'll be a musician. That is yeah. just a sentence, like, that's a recipe for disaster. Mm. And, uh, and I feel like a, a kind of difficult life. So I, I, I really, I sympathize a lot with that. Um, yeah, and also I kind of feel yeah. like it's, it's hard to talk them out of it, right? Because if you try and talk them out of it, they're going to hate you for it and they're going to do of it course. even more. So that's why I kind of thought I need to be yeah. completely just, you know, I, I used to help her with the, my daughter playing trumpet I'd, I'd, with the pieces as I'd sort of rehearse her a little bit, you know. Yeah. Um, but I didn't want to get involved in any that, that kind of what you want to choose to do later. That's got to be up to you. I don't want to get involved in that. Yes. Um, you know, because I just thought it was a recipe for disaster. That's what I felt like. Um, and so, you know, and, you know, I think, my, I think, yeah, I think my son's, 
because it's a, it's a massive... I mean, both my kids play video games a lot, actually, even my daughter, which is, I guess it's a rarer. Um, yeah. But he's a massive gamer, so I think he finds it amusing that, you know, some of his friends think the Donkey Kong rap's quite funny and all that, you know, he thinks it's quite <laughs> funny. Um, you know, yeah. I, he's had a few little moments like that where I think he was wearing a golden eye shirt to, at high school and one of, the, like, one of the senior guys said, hey, son, you know, so what? Do you know what that shirt is? You know, you know, you even know what you're wearing. And Max said, "Well, yeah, my dad wrote the music for it." And he was like, "Oh my!" It was like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so he's had a couple of moments. That's, that's the wor- ultimate yeah, flex. Yeah, it's kind of he's, yeah. It's come come a moments that have been worth it for that kind of a for the thing. But I mean, you know, I think he, th- he thinks it's quite cool that I do that. Um, yeah. But he's he's not a, he don't uh, he's not a musical guy, and now there's my daughter, so I'm I'm sort of secretly pleased. Yeah, what, Leighton, what do you think about like if a kid wanted to get into, let's say you have a kid who wants to be a game dev. Is that? <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know. That's why <laughs> I can't. Um, uh, that's great, kid. Follow your heart, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't have. A, I don't have a positive answer. On no, this. no, but I, I think that's right. Also, any of these creative fields, like you, kind of have to be like follow, follow your heart, but. You know, if if it's if it's my kid and that's what they gravitate towards, despite being raised in a household where I will constantly say that I hate video games, despite being a game developer, <laughs> then I guess that's kind of because I grew up like out of like a film industry family, and for my entire childhood, they were all like, "Do not, for the love of God, go into the film industry." And now I'm like, I'm working on my screenplay. Yeah. This is a yeah. great idea. Um. But I don't know if it was like an art thing. Like I've thought about that before too. Of just like visual art, I, I drawing with kids is super fun. But it's not something that I would like force. You know, if, yeah. if a kid likes drawing, that's great. I didn't figure out that I liked it so much until I was in like middle school. Um, I'd like always been kind of good at it or better at it, and then I was like, oh, this is a thing that you can do. But I don't know. Kids, kids are gonna find their interests wherever they are, and I feel like it's never a great match when a parent's like you're into this now yeah yeah and I, I, yeah and i always think to myself like you know as a parent you can kind of think how am i going to make money in the future that's a, that's a big thing yep. you've, got to make, you've got to survive right and like yes. doing yes. being a writer or a graphic art a fine artist or whatever you know that kind of thing it's you might not make any money doing that or it might be hard to make money and that's so right. you kind of you yeah. know and i you know i keep saying to my, to my son my son's like he's trying to choose what he wants to do next for college right and he's quite keen on Law, maybe, but he wants. To, he wouldn't mind being a game designer, and you know, mm. I can see. I feel like game designers are a, a good commodity. Like a good game designer is like gold dust, right? They're, they're hard to come by, you know. And I kind of feel like that's a that's a, a possibility. Um, but you know, for me, it's like you know, just go and work in HR. HR rules the world, right? Every, every, <laughs> you know, this, if you, if you if you work in HR, you're just going to be have a job for the rest of your life whenever you want it. And I know it's like not that great, you know, not an interesting job, but. And there's yeah. so many people, you know, do, <clears throat> do HR, do a little bit, end up at Amazon, do HR, do a little bit, end up at Google, do HR, do, and they just end up with these massive companies on Microsoft, and they're in yeah. a massive empire, having, you know, just, you know, money forever, you know, and, you know, and I know it's not that exciting job, but, um, so, you know, I tried not to say that, obviously, but... Um, when you go to the creative arts, you just never know what's going to happen, right? You just That's never, right. never know. And I feel, I do feel like you know, my, my, my wife's a science teacher, uh, uh, you know, kind of thing. And, um, I, you know, she keep, we keep talking about everybody wants the creative thing because that's the next thing. Because, like, you know, in the past where you just, you, you know, you, you learn a lot, a, a lot of facts, you regurgitate it in an exam, you forget it. 
you learn the next lot of facts, you're good. There's no, that's that's that almost like irrelevant now because there's the internet, right? You can find out anything you want to find out from the internet. Anybody can do that. It's the people mm. that can think creatively that are going to be the commodity that for the future that's going to be valuable, right? Whatever that happens to be. Mm -hmm. you, you, but you can, sort, you can problem solve. That's, that's, I feel like that's the most valuable thing, not just regurgitating facts. Yeah. You know? um, I feel like that, and yeah. if, if I had to, honestly, I feel like if Audrey was like, what career should I get into, Dad? I'd be like, HVAC. Things are getting hotter. <laughs> Learn to build air conditioners. <laughs> that's it's that's the industry of the true. future, right? Yeah, I'll be a plumber or elect electrician or a, or a welder. These, these jobs pay lots of money because no one does them. Any, you know, when you try to get a plumber, now it takes you like four weeks, right, to get a guy in to fix, or, or an HVAC guy, whatever it is. Like, yeah. you, yeah. you just can't it's, get hold of these guys. Do that and job. And when, when you find a really good one, you're like, oh my God, yes, there it is. Yes, now I will call you for everything. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like, we I went through like, yeah. a few HVAC people and then found a local one, and I was like, okay, this, now I love you. I, like... I'm, this, is, this is my thing. It's, it's, yeah. it's re repeat customer. Yeah. yeah. But I, I feel like when I was in high school, because I went to like a magnet high school where I did like finish the four years in two and then they paid for like college classes for the second half. But they were so militant about like very, very judgmental if you chose to go to a trade school or a community college or uh, any of that other stuff. They were like, get into a big name school. You're going to do this. Don't take off a year. And like I... That mentality is so frustrating of like, yes. you can only be successful if you get into a big name school. And it's like, uh, you're going to be in debt. Uh, think about that one for a little bit. Like, if you need to take a year off and work and have money before you do things and figure shit out before you start dumping money down the university toilet for a thing that you're maybe not interested in, like, yeah. make money, especially when I was applying to art school, which thankfully I got good scholarships and then ended up dropping out. But like... I wish that they would be realistic of like, okay, so you're going to be like 23 when you graduate, probably. This is the bill you're going to be stuck with, and here's how much you're going to make. Like, yeah. I think it's important that we encourage people, like, if you want to be creative, do it, but also you need to pay rent, and it's not mutually exclusive of, like, pay rent and do creative stuff. That's like, right. you just have to have the energy and the focus and the drive to do that alongside it. Obviously, capitalism makes this difficult because it's like, oh, you want to work, like, two quote-unquote normal jobs and then have extra time to do creative stuff but like you know that that creative part of you never goes away it's still going to be there you just have to like nurture it and make the time for it yeah and i must admit like that whole kind of you know coming from the uk to here that that whole american college thing just frightens us to death because it's like it's such a lot of money and, and also yes I, yeah. we don't understand how when, you, when you're 18 in the UK, you, you, you choose your subject at 18 that you're going to go and study for four years or three years, right? That's up to you. Right. And you choose it at 18 and, and that's it. You don't do anything else. Like, when, you know, in America, you've got those first two years still doing general stuff, which I, we kind of, you know, we kind of find that you're paying money still to do math and language arts. It just seems to be crazy daft to me. Like, yeah. why would you waste money on the first? Surely, so, you know, my, my as being a, a tight Scotsman is, you know, through community college for two years, which is free here, and then transfer to a UC for years three and four, whatever. Yeah. And then you're still going to come up with the same degree at the end of it, and you're going to have half the cost. Like it make, it make it seems to be to be the best idea in the world to me. So I do, we don't. Like, yeah, also, you do your prerequisites yeah. at a community college. Yeah. You don't if you're going to go to like a specialized school or like an art school. You don't need to go do art school like English. No, it's rubbish. It's, it's a it's, waste yeah, of money. It's terrible. And also, in the, and in the UK, it's capped, right? So I guess you know this, Brian. That any school in the UK you go to. It, and even the best school, like Oxford and Cambridge, 
be charged the same money as everybody else. There's no That's difference. Right. It's capped. So like here yeah. in, in America, the best schools charge as much as they yeah. want. Like I, I in believe the UK, it's oh capped. Everyone pays the same money no matter where you go. What, basically what they did, uh, this is probably, what, 10 or 15 years ago, as they started charging a little bit, and then they, I think it was like 3,000 pounds a year or so, yeah. and then they said, okay, actually, it's a sliding scale. It can be 3,000 to 9,000. Right. And then everybody, and they're like, but you don't have to charge 9,000. Everybody immediately started charging 9,000 yeah, pounds yeah. a year. But the other interesting thing they do is you don't have to pay that money directly. Right. right. Uh, my, my understanding is that you basically get a, it, I mean, I think you maybe you can, but you basically get a loan for it at a reasonable instru, uh, interest rate. And then they kind of take it out of paychecks or whatever as you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so what they do on. is they say that if you, you don't have to pay it back until you earn a certain amount of money. I think it's like yeah. 20 grand a year, something, something like, like that. that 20 yeah. pounds. So if you don't ever make that 20 grand a year, you never pay it back. Right. Yeah. So they wait wow. until you, you they wait until you earn a decent wage and then you start paying it back, which I yeah. think is a great idea, you know. It, and the it, fact it's a great Oxford idea. And Cambridge, yeah, and yeah, Oxford and Cambridge charge nine grand like everybody else. It's, it's, so, yeah. so, you, so you get in based on how clever you are, not on how much money you've got, you know. Yeah, that's so right. That makes to me it makes sense. You, surely you should get in on how clever you are, not you've got rich parents or whatever it is. I just think that's wrong. Uh, so yeah. I, I find them. Uh, yeah. Mm. I have to say, yeah. I, I personally, I, I am very in favor of the the liberal arts degree. I mean, the it, when, so when I was when I was in the UK, the, it was liberal arts was basically a punchline. They're like, "What are you, a liberal arts student?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, basically with this uh, veneer of "Oh, you don't know what you're doing, and you're kind of useless." Um, for me, like without, uh, I went to a liberal arts college, and without that, I. Don't I would not have ended up as a music major. I went in wanting to do, uh, let's say, I guess it was physics and philosophy. I ended up doing, you know, of course, the U.S. You can have double majors. Uh, I, went, I ended up doing math and music, and that was really because of that first year. Because I went in with this idea of like, okay, I want to do at least you know one kind of very useful or concrete thing, um, and. Uh, I took one music class and I was like, well, oh, fuck this. Okay. You know, I, I, I was already a musician, but I was not taking theory classes and stuff like that. And that one class then complete, I mean, really completely changed my life and allowed me to, you know, focus on that uh, instead. Now I know you can do that in the UK. We had people. So when I was teaching in the physics department, you'd get people who were like, oh, I did a year in whatever, computer science, and now I'm switching over here. But they cap the number of years that you can get that money for or something yeah. like that. Right? Yeah. So it's not impossible, but it's... I, I saw a lot of the other side of that, which was students who too early were forced into a particular thing, in my case, physics, and fucking hated it. They got a year in, because you don't like you don't know what physics is until you're doing it at like maybe a second or third year uh, university level. And that and that's not what you're doing in high school. And once you get to that level and it's a whole other thing when you're, you know, getting a, a research degree, like a Ph.D. or something. But uh, it, it, I saw a lot of students be like, well, I signed up. I got in for physics. I was teaching at, at Queen Mary uh, in London and, uh, you know, which is a good but not top, top, top school. And these students felt completely trapped because they had to pick so early and what they got into was not what they thought they were 
getting right. into. And then they were like, well, and actually, if they were in their second year, it was like, well, I actually can't really switch now because I won't have the money to start yeah. a new course. Uh, there was a, a, a negative side to that, too. I don't think there's like a right or wrong answer. I think a lot of it comes down to personal preference. Some students loved only taking physics classes. I'll tell you what, talk about that science thing. As my, my wife's been a science teacher, you know, and she, she did a, a, a zoology in, in the UK and she, did, she started doing a PhD. But um, teaching the, in high school here, the science classes, they do like chemistry one year, biology the next, and then they do it in separate years. And she's yeah, just, yeah. Just, just, such a crazy idea because, you know, kids are 15, whatever, when, or when, or when they go to high school, whatever, you know, 14. Right. You know, and they start doing biology. You know, that gets really hard towards the end of biology. It's a really hard subject, yeah. right? And I kind of feel like, so they get to that point and go, this is really difficult. Where, like in the UK, you teach all three alongside, so they all get stepped along. Oh, that's interesting. Over, I didn't so, know that. So, yeah. so you don't learn one at a time. So you're not having to learn some really hard biological facts or, you know, things at yeah. 14. You learn them when hmm. you're eight, 17, you know, so, so you, you, you can understand it better. She thinks it's a crazy way to teach science in the US. Like doing Yeah, it like, that's interesting. They do, like in the UK, when I, I started doing chemistry, science, uh, uh, chemistry and biology and uh, physics at the same time, and, you st- and they all step along for the next three years, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And it's much better. So when you get to the older age, you understand it better because the harder concepts come later. But here you get a really hard concept at 14 yeah. in biology, which you just can't understand. You just find it's hard to understand. It seems like a, and it puts yeah. people off science, I think. I'm not doing that ever again. Where you might find that, where scientists might, if they, if they benefit from doing it all together, in, you, know, in, you know, concurrently, you might find people would take science more seriously later in life when they go to university because they enjoyed it as opposed to hating it because it's got so hard too quick, you know. That's really interesting. Yeah. I I wonder what, I mean, I would assume here it's partly just real estate, meaning that they, you know, only so many courses you can offer in a given year and there's other stuff that yeah, that's maybe. taken up with that. Yeah. I, I don't have a good sense at all of what the British, the secondary, uh, secondary school education is. Well, you know, you do that like thing there. where like, it's funny, the high school diploma thing, it sort of feels like it's not quite complete to me here. Like in the UK, you do the called, um, they used to be called O levels and A levels, right? Right. Uh, it's called the GCSE and some yes. I can't remember they call it. It's different now. So you do, you do yeah. the O levels at 14, that's two year course. You pick eight subjects and you do those. It's called an O level and you get a pass in that. And then yeah. when, you, when you start the sixth the, 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 the six and seventh year at school, that's the sixth form time, you, um, right. you do A levels, which are, you choose three to do over two years. That's, and you, so it narrows it down. So you know, it works like that. And then you, you, for those three A levels, you choose to go to university and you, tr- you get the best grades to get in right. Well, I still yep. feel like it's still very general in the US, right to the end of high school, right? Still generally all, everything, right? That's right. Um, and so you, that, and then you get the two years still generally again at the, the first step of college. Right? Well, I think it's a little bit crazy. So yeah. I guess it, it maybe gives people longer to decide what they really want to do. But, but, but yeah, the, the, the other side of that, though, is that now, as education gets worse and worse here in the States, you have people going to college who still like, you know, they show up and they don't have the preparation that's needed to do the advanced stuff there either. I, ideally, they should show up at college and have, you know, a good high school education. But as education gets worse and worse and worse, it's almost like that time, that extra time becomes more and more important. Because you're not getting it just, you know, it's this collapsing pyramid of, okay, well, you're not getting it in elementary. And then you're, you have to make up for that in middle school and then make up for that in high school. It's, yeah, it's, it's a real, it's a real bummer that uh, it it feels like this system is being like the, the so-called like extra time 
people need more and more of it just to do right. the basic coursework. It's definitely not getting uh, better. So I, I feel, you know, unfortunately, I feel I wish it was you, you didn't need quite as much time, but I think it's going in the in the opposite direction. Yeah, I feel like in the UK, you, you are it's slowly converging to that point of like, you go to university, you, you do your eight subjects for the two years at O-level, 14 to 16. Then you do yeah. your, your three subjects at 16 to 18, and it's getting closer to what you think you want to do. And then you get to the end of those two years at 18, and then you choose, you either take a year off or whatever and think about it, and then you go to university. Right. And by that point, you've got a more of a focused idea about what you really like to do. I yeah. feel like, I mean, it's, there's still kids, like you say, who don't get it and don't know what they want to do, but it's narrowed it down a bit more by the time you get to 18. I think here it's still massively divergent, massively general. That's, absolutely. Right to, to 18 when you go and you think, I still don't know what I want to do. And then yet, yet so you do your four yeah. years at college and then really to get to be properly educated, you need to go and do a master's. And that's to me yep. like, it's just, it's just like, is that just a license to print money? Is that just like going, we need to it, get more money out of you? you, I, you know? I, I, think it, I think it is. And something I, I've said for years is way too many people go to college in, in the US and go into debt because of it when they don't need to. It's like, you know, I, I think a college degree is is great. I, I'm generally very, 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 I mean, look, I was a professor. I'm fucking pro-university. Like, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I like college. I want people to go to college. But I think generally speaking, too many go as a, I don't really know what I want to do, so I'm just going to go into debt going into this college rather than, and probably if that's the case, your time would be better spent getting a job or, you know, doing a thing where you're not going to be going into debt uh, and essentially wasting time. The the other thing I wanted to talk about this before when you said this, Layton, is there was an article, I think last week about like MFAs and uh, programs like at, at these very elite schools like Columbia Screenwriting MFA. And they basically went in to say, you know, they did some research and asked, given how much you spent, like, was it worth it? And the answer is absolutely fucking not. <laughs> like, not yeah. at all. Like, people are going into six-figure debt Jeez. to get these, like, I forget exactly what it costs to get an MFA at, like, Columbia or something now, but it's probably not less than 60, 70 grand a year. And oh, yeah. the number of people that are coming out of that and actually earning at a, you know, earning enough money to make that seem like a worthwhile proposition is essentially nobody. Mm. Like I, I think, yeah. you know, th there's the undergraduate education stuff, which is certainly one thing, but getting a, again, look, I got an advanced degree. I'm not anti-advanced degree here, but I think especially in the creative, uh, in, in the arts, Ooh, that, that, yeah. that, advanced especially because so much of it is like, luck yeah. about knowing that one right person who will suggest a thing or hitting something at just the right time or whatever. I mean, like, that's the thing that I guess nobody really wants to acknowledge is you can do all this preparation. You can spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on school. But if you don't have that, like that thing, you just yeah. kind of have to keep plugging and keep doing it, even if that thing has not. Yeah. If the guy happened. at the video game place didn't listen to your sixth cassette or whatever you sent in, then, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, too, no, like I, too yeah, bad. I would say people like, you know, I think people yeah. underestimate the networking part of, of any job. And oh, especially, yeah. especially, I mean, you know, I can speak about composing, so that's what I do, but I mean, I feel like being a talented composer is only 50% of the battle. It's, it's only half yep. the battle, really. Like, you know, you can put your music on a website somewhere, you can stick it on. But, you know, or, or your own website or on YouTube. But, you know, probably no one's going to hear it. You could be the best composer in the world. and Because everyone's doing it. You just get lost in the noise, right? You have to yeah. 
meet people that are doing the thing that you want to do at conventions or what yes or ninja sex party gigs or whatever it is where yep. yeah. people are like-minded doing the thing that you want to do and you get to know them they like you because half the time if they just like you they're probably going to give you the gig you know you know, they think, you know <laughs> yeah just don't be an yeah, asshole yeah, I know, like, that's yes. like a huge one I know. college isn't going to teach you to not be an asshole i know that is, that yeah. is, i think that's so true i would say to people just be amicable you know You'd be nice it, yeah, yes. like we, yeah, when the director communicate clearly. Yeah, but it's true. Like when yes. the director says to you, "I don't like it," don't say, "Look, I'm the composer. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I know music," and he's going to go, "Really? You're fired." You don't, you know, they don't want that. Just yeah. be, you know, understand that you're a commodity. You're selling yourself, and you need to do what they want to do. They're going to because it's like there's eight million people stood behind you who will do your job right now and yeah. be grateful for it. And yeah. I feel like, especially yeah. the composer world, it, everyone thinks I write music and what I'm talking about. It's like, who cares if they yeah, don't like it? No, you, you, you can say, but listen to the chorus, listen to the melody. They're going to go, I don't give a shit. I don't like it. That's it. Yeah. Do it again. Oh, fuck off. But, you know. And it's, I could not agree more. The networking and just being a, a kind, reasonable, good <laughs> communicator <laughs> is, is the most important. Being, a, being those things as a person is more important than being talented. Talent, totally. like whatever. Yes. Um, but, and the, yeah, there's, there's, oh, sorry, Brian, you're no, about no, to please, build a thing, please. right? I was just going to say that, like, it's hard to let go of the idea of like deservability of like, I worked hard for this, thus I deserve that. Nobody deserves anything. No. Yeah. Deserving something is like a fake word. Like it, you can, as you said, you can be the absolute best and people may not even see you or, you know, there, there's that like growing feeling of entitlement that I see a lot of creatives get where they're like, well, I'm posting stuff all the time, so I don't understand why this isn't blowing up. And then it turns into like resentment for people who are successful, which breeds like a bad attitude in you. Like it, it, it's such a like, you got to maintain that balance of being cool, doing stuff on time. And I think it comes back to that like workman attitude too, of like, this is a job. It doesn't matter if I don't yep. feel the muse today or whatever. It's like, you just have to clock in and do it. Anybody can have an idea, but how many people can execute that yep, idea totally. well yep. and get it done and then find the right people for it and be cool and just keep making it happen. Like everybody has the, comic that they want to write or the story they've been working on forever but haven't put down a single word and that's fine but you have to like that's the thing everybody wants to have have written nobody wants to write yeah <laughs> like, I, I, I love right. that american saying like don't drink your own kool-aid i think it's a great saying that i think you do something good like and you oh i'm great now and like that's just irrelevant like the next thing's the most important thing that you do not the last thing Cause that's, yeah, that's that's gone that's right. in the past right like you know it doesn't matter yeah. how many pieces of music I've written. It's, just, it's irrelevant. Like, what am I going to do now when I get hired tomorrow for the next person? Right. And, That's and it's important. It's all aggregate, too. It is essentially, I mean, this does happen, but it's almost never, I did one thing and that blew up and now I'm a superstar, yeah. right? It's <laughs> like, yeah, of course that happens. But the majority of people who have successful careers in the arts, you just keep plugging away and I, I remember thinking when I was younger, like, oh, we, you know, I met that person. That's going to change everything. Or, you know, our, our album got on this chart. That's going to change everything. And it absolutely does not. Like, it is just the aggregate yeah. of continuing to do it and, and be reasonable. The, the thing I was going to say before is the, I think the yeah. other side of this, in addition to the networking, is having some vague business sense. Right. And just being able to, you know, we're all small business owners these days. Any kind of creator is essentially a small business owner. Um, and you, you just have to be aware how that stuff works. I, I, I feel like I had to learn all this by doing, uh, you know, just 
falling into it and then figuring it out as as you go but it's or a side gig having a billion different side billion, gigs it's and all side hustles them and yeah it, it, maybe it'll you know turn out to be something and maybe it will be nothing but you did it and that's what matters yeah and i guess there's exactly your point brian of like similarly if you are a mentally ill creative it's very easy to look at like well if i can just get x if i can have the big successful thing then then my brain will be normal and i'll have self-esteem and that will fix everything and i'm telling you you get the thing nothing changes no, no that's <laughs> like, right Nothing changes until you do. If anything, it's going to make you feel more isolated because it's like, well, I got my goal and I'm miserable. So what now? Like you can't fixate on a destination because it's hollow. It doesn't matter. It's a goalpost that you've set for yourself and you're going to continue to move that goalpost throughout your life. Yeah. Like to, to what we're speaking about, there's a really good mess. Uh, Mickelson quote that's just like, I treat every project like that is the thing. Like for the time being, that's all it needs to be. I'm not thinking about my career. I'm thinking about how do I make this the best thing that I can, yeah. which love it. Yeah, like I, I always call that the curse of aspiration. Like I feel like you, you just, you're never satisfied with that thing you did, no matter how great it happens to be. You want the next thing on the, on the mountain, right? You just can't give in. And I, I yeah. really sort of feel, to, think to myself, that's sort of partly ruined my life in a way. I cannot not aspire to the next thing. Yes, like, me too. I've got, I've got yeah. friends who just Same. drive a bus for a living and are the happiest people in the world. They just <laughs> drive a bus and they love it and yes. they have a, go out and get drunk at night and play with, play with their friends and do all the great... I'm just happy. And I think, look at me, you know, why can't I just be like that? Like, I just... I hate that constant yeah. aspiring to be the, to the next great thing, you know, whatever that... And I just, it just bugs yeah. me. I think, is my life just going to be that, that eternal looking for the next great thing to do, you know? I, I feel that 100%. And, and to me, yep. uh, uh, a, a thing that is tied in with that is a sense of legitimacy. Like, oh, you know, if, you know, w will this person say, I like what you do? You know, so someone who is in a place I want to be or a career or, or something like that, will they look at what I do and say, good job, bud. And it, 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 it's kind of part and parcel of the same thing to me. It's that next big project and then also getting like recognized from people who are in, you know, up there, higher yeah. up the yeah. higher up the mountain. Yeah. And also, don't uh, you think that, yeah. you know, you get 8,000 great comments and the one comment that doesn't like it, that's the one you focus on. And that, yes. from that point, oh, it's shit. He doesn't like it. It's shit. You know. Yeah. And I just wish that yeah. I could just not do that, you know. Um, yeah. I, because like I, I have to do that where I'm like, the person who would, a complete stranger who would approach me and tell me this, I don't care about your opinion or respect your opinion. I didn't fucking ask. And I don't like a person who's just going to come up and be rude as shit to me for no reason. Yeah. But will I stay up all night <laughs> thinking about it? Absolutely, yes. Yes, totally. And it, there's always, you know, and I don't want to say more often than not, but very frequently, they find like exactly the sore spot. Right. And you're like, oh, it's, it's, it's fuck. that John they Mulaney, like, that. no, that's the thing I'm <laughs> sensitive about. Yeah. I had literally one of those yesterday, and I was like, oh, yeah. no. I know. I know. Don't validate my anxiety, <laughs> you piece of shit. All right. So let us move on to segments. Our first segment is our pop culture recommendation segment. We get to talk about a book or a movie or music, piece of music, whatever we like uh, that's been capturing our attention. And the theme song goes here. What's poppin'? What's poppin'? All right. That's the what's poppin'. 
theme song. I forgot to say the name of the segment in true professionalism uh, fashion, true professional fashion. I forgot to call the segment. What's poppin'? That's the name of the segment. Layton, what's poppin'? That was a great intro, Brian. <laughs> I'm really proud of I you. I rehearsed it. That was verbatim <laughs> what I, I was reading it. Good. I'm so glad. Uh, what's poppin' for me is that last week I had a hypomanic episode and read a billion books. So I'm just going to rattle off all the books I read because all of them were good. Great. All right. I read... I read Love at Goon Park, Harry Harlow and the Science of Affection, which was about the monkey mother experiments uh, in Harry Harlow, who is a real character. So if you're interested in psychology, read that book. I read Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty, which amazing about the opiate crisis and how the Sacklers are cartoonishly shitty um, and just single-handedly responsible for a fuck ton of death. It's If you like Succession, what if everyone on Succession was a billion times worse and also real? <laughs> Um, I read Michael Imperioli's novel, The Perfume B Burned His Eyes. I have a huge crush on Michael Imperioli, and it's just like, damn, was this you're book a good, good writer. Yeah. Yes, it was really good. It was very, like, uh, Scorsese's After Hours-y, just sort of like slice of life New York mm -hmm. shit. I read The Last Victim, A True Life Journey into the Mind of a Serial Killer, which is about this kid who, as, like, a graduate project, started writing and, like, kept up correspondences with John Wayne Gacy and, like, really? Dahmer and Richard Ramirez. Wow. Yes. Like, wrote to them in jail. So, yes. But the thing is, is he basically fronted as the, like, he figured out the ideal victim for John Wayne Gacy and, like, role-played that. And I have to say, this book, every possible trigger warning that you can possibly put on a thing <laughs> yeah. is on this book. Yeah, it's one yeah. of the most fascinating things I've ever read, but it is extremely disturbing. But he keeps up this correspondence with Gacy where Gacy is like stalking him from prison. And then he goes and visits Gacy. Oh my God. And Gacy like assaults him. Um, like attacks him. And yes, yes. Oh God. Uh, bad. Like sort of like the whole thing for this kid. Cause he was like 18 and this is at the true. time. This is was, a true story. Yes, this is a true story. And this guy went on to work for the FBI and like all this stuff. And he eventually committed suicide, seemingly partially because of what happened here. Um, but it's a fascinating, fascinating read. And it's horrible. But uh, I highly recommend it. It's one of the best true crime books I've ever read. So I read all those books. They're all good. Those are what's <laughs> popping for me. All of them are bummers. Literally all of them are bummers because I don't know how to read a positive, happy thing. Cool. That's me. Grant, what's popping? Oh, so I sort of feel like, like um, you guys seem to be very intellectual and I'm, I'm just not that clever, I'm afraid. I just, I just, I just, I just don't read. I, I really don't read anything. I've never read any books in my life. One thing I've read really I could say is the Harry Potter books and James Bond. I think that's it. <laughs> well, to, I mean, to be fair, that's fine. last week, Leighton's recommendation, recommendation was something called the Sigma Male Grind Set, which was <laughs> a bunch you. of videos on YouTube. Uh, which were literally the opposite of intellectual. So the, 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 yeah. it's not like Layden doesn't talk about books, but this is, we're not generally talking about intellectual stuff. Right. No, yeah. just, I, yeah. I, I, I just, Brian, Brian like recommends Yacht Rock every week. So <laughs> it's, it's literally whatever you want. I guess what my favorite things right now, I'm a massive Marvel fan, right? I've always been massive. I've got my Marvel t-shirt on. Um, but, um, you know, I really love it. I really love One Division and Loki. Like, I just feel that they're just fantastic TV, and yeah. I really like the fact that they've they've chosen. Um, you know, um, especially Loki, like a, a quite a, an unknown director, a female director who's done a fantastic job, um, and just made it something that no one expected. And I kind of like 
the fact that Marvel, this, this gigantic kind of machine that churns out this stuff, take these chances on people to make cool shit that isn't what you expect. And yeah. you wouldn't think Disney would be that kind of people. They like it to be down the middle, that they can really bank, on, bank it money-wise. But I feel like those two, especially, I mean, I love WandaVision today. I thought it was fantastic. Uh, and I really love, really love Loki. And so they're the things that I really, really enjoyed you know, kind of of late. I've been watching mm. Bosch on TV. Oh, is that good? I, yeah. I like Titus Welliver. Yeah, I must admit, I, really, I wasn't that keen, but I really like it. I mean, it's all based on LACC things that you kind of, that you recognize. Yeah. So I really enjoyed that. And I've been watching that Line of Duty show, the UK show, which is absolutely fantastic. Line um, of Duty? I don't know what this yeah, is. Yeah, it's like a cop thing. It's, been, it's like, I think it's, it's in the, I think it's been the sixth, the sixth season. Um, but um, the plots are fantastic. The guy that writes it, it's just a, these, ama- you should watch it. It's an amazing cop drama. It just, and it kind of <laughs> goes through the entire thing. Every season is kind of linked together a little bit um, to get to the big thing at the end, which has quite not happened yet. So I guess I watch a lot of TV. Um, That's great. I'm trying to think about stuff musically that I've listened to. My problem is, right, I don't know if you feel like this, but I'm not very good at picking up on new things. I, I'm very slow at that. So mm-hmm. when some, some, someone says to me, this is great, it'll take me years to, get, to, to like it. I just don't like it. Like, I remember people telling me that Queen's right were great, and I, I was ah, rubbish, you know, and I absolutely adore Queen's right now. I think they're a fantastic yeah. band, and equal, equally Nightwish. I, people that said, I learned, I learned about them years ago. I'm not listening to any of it. It's got a f- funny operatic lady singer. It's crazy. But I love Nightwish now. It I am shocked you, you didn't listen to Queensryche. I know. Crazy. Before, I, I, just, like, I guess I had a, this friend of mine who I didn't, wasn't that keen on. He kept preaching like new things. I'd just ignore it because he, he liked it. But like, I absolutely love Queensryche. I mean, I, mean, I guess up to Empire, from that, up to that point, you know, after yeah. that, you know. But, um, but so, yeah, Operation I mean, Mindcrime rules. Oh, it's oh, yeah, so God, good. Yeah. Yeah, but like, the album for that for me is Rage for Order. I really feel that's a super deep album. I'll re- I love that yeah. album to death. Like, yeah, yeah. And it gets to this climax and ends in screaming and digital. Then goes, you know, I will remember, not, you know, you know. So, but um, yeah, you know, I really wish that I would read because it sounds like such a fantastic <laughs> thing to do, but I just never do it, and I just I've never done it as ever in my life. I don't know why. Apart from I read metal magazines and stuff like that, and I, was, I, I, yeah. I loved a lot of comics. I, I would read comics, in, uh, you know, insatiably as a kid, you know. That's reading, though. Yeah. That's, I, I, that's I guess, totally yeah, reading. I guess I suppose I'm poo-pooing that a little bit. Like, I loved reading comics as a kid. Like, I, I would never be without a comic, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, but superhero yeah. stuff, you know, primarily. You know. Um, so the, the only way I've been able to get into it, like, again, because I was a really voracious reader as a kid, uh, is replacing, like, regularly replacing the social media position on apps with Kindle. So oh, if right. I go to reflexively open Reddit or whatever, so I'll open smart. Kindle and be like, uh, I should probably just read <laughs> this <laughs> instead of look at just losing brain cells. Uh, yeah. Brian, what is popping? Uh, well, I'm sorry, uh, Grant. I have a book <laughs> to, <laughs> uh, to recommend. Uh, so what's popping for me this week? And I, I, you know what? I did not know going into this that we were going to be talking about uh, the university systems of uh, England, America, because my what's popping is it's a trilogy by David Lodge, who's a British author. It's called the Campus Trilogy, and it is about uh, I've only I've almost done with the first book, and it's basically about a uh, an English professor, a, a like a professor of English literature uh, from what is clearly Birmingham, but not. Uh, who trades places with a guy at what is clearly Berkeley, but not, and they swap. And so this American, like, you know, kind of 
uh, irascible, older Jewish-American professor goes to Birmingham, and this very uptight British guy goes to Berkeley. And this is at, it takes place in 1969, basically. So it's all the Vietnam protests and everything is happening. And these guys kind of swap places and learn about each other's university systems. It's a, it's a satire. Uh, and these were, I think, Lodge's most famous uh, books. To, to give you some idea of what these people are, he talks in the intro to this trilogy. He said his dream casting for these two roles, and remember this is in the late 60s, early 70s, was John Cleese and Walter Matthau. Oh, those right, those right. are who he imagined mm. playing these people. Um, it, it's, they're a bit dated now. Uh, you know, these are like from the late 60s, so you have to put up with some, you know, like maybe kind of sexist stuff and stuff like that. But as, as you know, as many stuff, many things from the past uh, uh, have. But uh, it's a really interesting, ha- having been an American academic who moved to England, you know, to deal with that university system, uh, I-, I find a lot of like, oh, yeah. That's right. That is that. That's a thing that I had to deal with. Like this feels so laser targeted at your brain. Yeah, and it's it, it, it. They're really fun. They're very well written. They're very funny. Um, I'm really really enjoying it. So I'm almost done with the first book, and there's there's two more in this trilogy. I've been meaning to to read them forever. People, th- there's a uh, Lodge says in the introduction that it was it, it's almost a, a cliche at this point to have this first book given to every, you know, American academic moving to England. Uh, and I can't believe I didn't read it before I did, but, uh, they're really, they're really fun and, uh, and interesting if, if somewhat a bit of artifact of a, you know, an earlier time. So yeah, the campus trilogy by David Lodge that also, and the new masters of the universe show on Netflix is Netflix is pretty fucking great. I really, really enjoy it. I've heard that's great. Yeah. I've heard people say that's great. It was a great show. Yeah, the one of the directors is Patrick Stannard, who uh, is an animator that we've worked with at NSP. He directed the uh, our like uh, big Wizards and Warriors kind of song that came oh, out shit. a little okay. bit ago. He he was the uh, director for the animation team there, and he's one of the directors of this show. I was a big He-Man fan growing up in the '80s, uh, and it's cool to. I haven't really followed it since then, but they. Uh, you know, they do some interesting stuff, including, okay, spoiler alert, skip forward 20 seconds if you don't want to hear me say this. Actually, not 20 seconds. It's more like more like a minute and a half. So call it two minutes if you really want to be safe. Killing off He-Man in the first episode. All right. Which <laughs> is a pretty fucking baller move that I really like. So, wow. Yeah. Well, it's he's, really dead, fun. he's dead for the entire seat or you just come back and that's it? Uh, he, he shows up in flashbacks, but as far, uh, unless now I haven't finished, I, I'm, I've watched four out of five episodes. So maybe something happens in episode five, right? but right now he is dead and they're dealing with kind of the fallout of what caused him to die. Wow. That's a ballsy move, isn't it? Right. To kill off fucking yeah. human. It's <laughs> yeah. And Skeletor too, by the way, human and Skeletor are both are both dead and gone. And Skeletor uh, basically has been replaced with a, like a techno futurism cult headed by Triclops. And uh, essentially all or most of the magic has disappeared. And so there's, it's an interesting idea. And also apparently it's, I forget exactly what the, his role is, but I think it's 
the showrunner, I believe, is Kevin Smith, who is so hit and miss that it's just ridiculous. <laughs> right. uh, more miss than hit, in my opinion, these days. Uh, but he did a really, really great job uh, with this. Well, so. well, fancy that. Yeah, it's fun. Sick. All right. All right, let's on. move into our final segment, yeah. uh, which is called Peaches and Lemons, and this is the part where the theme song goes right there. Peaches and Lemons. Okay, so this is three-part gratitude exercise and one-part petty grousing. So we will each go around and share a lemon, which is a thing that is a mild bummer or inconvenience. And then we will each share three peaches, big or small, just a nice a nice thing that made you happy or that, you know, is cool. I'm getting so good at doing this introduction. Yes, uh, it's better so than mine. Let's... <laughs> Let's you did you did good this episode, Brian. I'm really proud of your self control. Do not say anything further on that. Uh, let's I, I just want to say I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> let's each do let's let's each do a fucking lemon, please God. Uh, I'll go first real quick since I basically already said mine. Okay. It's, it's raining today. We couldn't send Audrey to camp. It's a bummer. I wanted right. her to go to camp, and she wanted to go to camp. So I'm bummed about that. That's it. Rip. That's my lemon. Uh, Grant, do you have a lemon? My lemon is the uh, the death of common sense. I feel like, <laughs> I just feel like we just, the, the America at the moment, common sense has just gone out the window. It seems to be based on, uh, uh, people make decisions based on anything except common sense. Uh, and that just drives me at the wall. I can't believe it. It's crazy. Perfectly fair. Yeah. Uh, my lemon is that the other day I was taking a nap on my couch. And when I take a nap, my dog will come up and like sniff at my face and then she'll get nice and cozy on me. So I was doing that and I felt like a little tickle on my face. And I was like, oh, maybe's here. And then I went to pet her and she was not there. And then I opened my eyes and the biggest spider oh. I have oh ever seen in my time living in L.A. had crawled across my face. <laughs> Uh, and you know, normally I do the little cup paper thing and I yep. take the spider Same. out and that was just an immediate like slap because I oh, no. still am getting like once the ghost they're, once they're on your body, face. it's, it's game over. I'm very sorry. I will always save spiders, <laughs> yeah. but it was so fucking big. We're doing the video, but it was like that. Uh, wow. uh. And then the rest of the night, I like every like little hair twitch on me. I was like, <gasps> like, where the fuck did that come from? When I first moved here, one of the first days I have that AC unit back there and a cockroach just fell out of it <laughs> uh, and slapped the ground. So I'm always paranoid about sudden, sudden large creatures. I had a, so that's my limit. A sen- when I was staying at Rachel's parents' house in Minnesota, this is several years ago, I had a fucking centipede drop onto my face from the ceiling in the middle no. of the night. And I woke up screaming. Like, because this thing just went <laughs> right on my face, crawl. You know, they have a million oh. legs just all over. <laughs> I just, oh, it was awful. I know, like when we first moved here, I was like the, the, the thing about seeing the first Black Widow, you know, on a web. Like, you yep. know, you, you you sort of taught to just think they're going to attack you and kill you immediately when they, yep. I mean, they don't do that. But like the first time we saw one, we, we all were all at the front door. There was a Black Widow just outside the front door. Yeah, and you just kind of edge around it because you, 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 what's it going to do? It's not going to run and run, try and bite you, right? Because they're really timid spiders. They're that high. Yeah. But I mean, that first time we absolutely shat ourselves, like without yeah. a doubt. We thought, oh my and, god, you know. And they're just everywhere. They're, yeah. Like if you have a backyard, they're here. I don't know anyone that's ever been bitten by one. I'm sure it happens. Yeah. yeah. But you know, we. It's not like you have to worry about kids and stuff. You'd say, don't touch that spider, because that would be bad. But. 
yeah, it's not like kids everywhere. are gonna go touching spiders anyway. No, like no. that's not really. A but for a while, we, me, my, I, yeah, at night times, my wife and I would, she, I'd, she'd have a torch, uh, a flashlight, and I'd have a swatter, and would go out at like eight at night when it was dark and find them in the, all, all in the backyard and kill them mm-hmm. all. Because for a, for a quite a long time, cause we were all we're so paranoid about it. Now we just don't care. But at the time, it was like, we're going to kill them yep. all because they're going to come in at night and kill us, you know. So I had a neighbor with, with an actual torch, like a blowtorch, who would go out and fucking blowtorch <laughs> the Black Widows. Just what the fuck? like a little acetylene blowtorch. Just, wow. yeah, we loved it. I This is something that I had thought was a universal experience because I was speaking to somebody about this. Growing up or in your life, have you had to encounter many snakes in the wild? No. So I've, I've, we've had a couple of baby rattlesnakes in the backyard. Really? Yeah. yeah. Since we've been living here, what, inside this house, about five years. And we've just been two uh, but little ones. And they always say that little ones are the worst because they, don't, they always inject all the venom. They don't venom. know how to. Yeah, because they, they don't know how to control it yet. Yeah. So and there's a guy around here called Bo the Snake Wrangler who comes around and <laughs> takes it away. And he's this bald guy. He's, he's a bit, I don't know if you remember a band in the past called Rose Tattoo. You're probably too young, but Rose Tattoo. They were an American rock band. A bit like ACDC. No, the guy actually appears in um, Beyond Thunderdome, Mad Max. He's completely bald. He's got, a thing, he's, he's got like a thing at the back of his head, like, a, like a, some kind of... Anyway, you're probably just too young, right? Wait, your, your but, snake guy is in Beyond Thunderdome? No, 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 but he looks like oh, him. Okay. Sorry. Okay, okay, gotcha. Ah. Yes, yes. And so he, Bo comes around. He's got this kind of cut-off denim thing, with bare chest and all that, you know. And he comes around and he just takes it away. But yes, yeah, so we've, we've seen two baby rattlesnakes. I mean, that absolutely freaks you out, you know. Ridiculous. Yeah, I, I just asked because, like, I, I grew up in the South. So the, seeing snakes was just like a regular occurrence. Like, you're just going to run into them. I've seen rattlesnakes and cottonmouths and all sorts of shit. Right. Like, it, it was just sort of like, oh, okay, snake, don't go over there. My my childhood dog got bit on the mouth by a cottonmouth. And then his, oh, like, God. snout wow. went softball. It was, it was terrible, but it was kind of funny. Um, but yeah, snakes, I think they're cool. I don't like them when I'm walking through a little marsh island and then all of a sudden a fat fucking rattlesnake just like goes right past my bare foot. Like I'm good. Yeah. I no. I I mean, we saw snakes so infrequently that I remember the one time a little black garter snake showed up in our garage. It was like an event. And yeah, it's exciting. I love to see a snake just. There was I was kayaking with my dad once, and then I don't remember what kind of snake it was, but it is terrifying when you were in a tiny boat, and then the snake just comes like you know oh, swimming yeah. on top of the water yeah. past you. Oh, but also, like, no, for me, like as, as a, a Brit, right? There's nothing in the UK that can kill you. There's no anim- there's no yeah. animal that doesn't exist. There's nothing. There's mm-hmm. a, I've got one snake there called it's called an adder. Sometimes call it a viper. Give yeah. you a bit, it can give you a bit mm-hmm. of a bite, but it's. It's, no, it's it's there's nothing in the UK that can kill you. So you can come to America, come in here where there's a a black widow can give you a nasty bite. There's a scorpion you can give you nasty. They won't kill you, you know. But a, a rattlesnake could, you know. Yeah. And I feel like that as a British person is just such an alien concept that something that, that exists can kill you is like so frightening to us lot, you know. Yeah, I bet. I love animals. All right, <laughs> let's do peaches. <laughs> um, I can start because mine are all like small and short. Sure. Uh, let's see. My first one is your lemon, Brian, which is that I woke up at 4 a.m. and it was raining and I couldn't sleep. So I just sat on my balcony and listened to the rain at 4 a.m. Oh, look, which is nice. I love rain. I love it when it rains here. It's my favorite thing. Mm. Not, but I, I wanted to send my kid to camp. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I don't want to take away from yeah. your peach. That's fine. You, you, It being a lemon for you does not diminish my peach. Right. That's exactly uh, my second one. 
is that I started making my own cold brew, uh, which has made me considerably more insane. Oh, God, it's good. <laughs> I, I, I've been making like the copycat Starbucks like caram salted caramel sweet cream, which is really easy. And so I get to make my froofy little coffee drink in the morning and uh, it's just nice. And then my third one is that I, because I was without a fridge for, well, without a working fridge and then fully without a fridge, uh, now I have a freezer again for like the first time in months. Mm -hmm. Freezers are fucking awesome, guys. <laughs> yeah, I don't pretty know great. if you do. You get frozen meal. I've been eating a lot of ice cream. Ice! Just get to have ice. Yep. I my my ice maker on my old fridge did not work at all. It's you just grab ice and put it in a drink and it's cold. <laughs> Novelty. Yeah. So those are mine. Uh, Grant, do you have three peaches? Uh, so I guess I thought about this a little bit. So my one of my peaches is just like the vaccine and science in general. Like it's just so great that yeah. people that people sit in laboratories working that shit out. And then we all just take it and it's great. And like, I just think that's such a fantastic thing. It's kind of my reverse to people's common sense thing and out the window. You know, you get all these. I just find that to be amazing. Like the fact that it makes our lives so much better. Like it's just crazy. Yeah. I'd say, you know, composing music in general. Because I think music just, you know, I do sit and think about it sometimes. Like just the fact that us human beings learn to stick notes that learned to cut the string in half and half again to get the notes and all that and work it all out in caveman days and it all works now and we all can write these amazing things it's fantastic so it makes you know it earns me a living but it's i kind of feel like everybody it's a universe it's a truly universal language you know you know mm -hmm. you, don't, you can sit there and not and not speak the same language and not understand each other at all but you can all get that piece of music which i think is mm -hmm. fantastic and we have a lot of peaches my brother's been super sick um and uh, he was uh, taken into hospital and the emergency oh, no. operation is sedated for a week uh, and he's come out of it and he's going to be all right. So oh, that's uh, great. So he was like totally under for a week. Yeah, he was, he was intub intubated for a whole week. It's not COVID, it's something else. Um, but totally out of the blue, um, passed out, taken into intensive care oh. in the UK, uh, emergency surgery, uh, and he's, he's all right. Uh, and Amazing. So, you know, you know, yeah, so it's crazy. I know it's slightly serious, I suppose, but uh, he's, uh, he's going to be all right. So that's, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm sure that's a load off. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's great. Uh, Brian? Uh, all right, peaches. Uh, first peach is I, lo I love playing video games with my daughter. And we're playing Skyward Sword now, which they just nice. released for uh, the Switch. I've never played this game before. All I knew about it is that some people really don't like it. <laughs> and I love it. It's a lot of it's. I'm having a great time. Is with that with it, the, the boss with the swirly eyes? Uh, that's Majora's Mask, I believe. No, it's on. It's, oh, maybe, maybe it's, a, it's on the. It's on the. the DS oh, sorry. There, there is a swirly eye thing. Yes, there's like a spiral eye. There's some. I, I, I just got a guy with a top hat with two swirly eyes. It, it, it's, it might not be. It's just Zelda, maybe not Skyward Sword. But my son had nightmares about that character for years. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, I haven't played a lot of the Zelda games. I'm kind of going back and 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 playing them now. I, I played. Here's how few Zelda games I played. I played the original when it came out for the NES, right. and then the next Zelda game I played was Breath of the Wild. Like, right. And well, I guess link to link nothing to the past. in between. Yeah. A Link to the Past for me and the Snares is my favorite video game of all time. I think that is such a fantastic game on the, on the, the Link to the Past. That's just brilliant. So you try and play that on the Super NES if you can. Well, that actually, I did start playing that after Breath of the Wild. Right. So, because they, uh, it was available on the, yeah, on the Switch. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's really, really great. Um, but it's, when I play with uh, Audrey, 
she's for a lot of these Zelda games, like there's just too much puzzle solving for a seven year old to really get. Maybe when she's like 10, she can do it. But for right now, she can just watch. And actually, she has solved some of the puzzles. I say it's too much for her, but she solved a bunch of stuff that I was stumped by. But while we play, she listens to the music and makes up words to it. All right. And she'll be like, Zelda is walking through a cave, you know, like (laughs) stuff like that. And it's so cute to just hear this little kid make up words to 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 the music as like, and she does it for every game we play she did it for uh, uh mario and rabbits kingdom Battle, right right i have to say and she, i've got to say that we played I, that I, one I really too. think that that playing games with your kids thing is really fantastic yeah. like you know i do get yeah, letters yeah. from people you know the emails sorry not letters you know um you know you know and some of them are quite sad where they say i played banjo kazooie with my mom when she was you know dying of cancer on her bed you know yeah, yeah. and you know, and to, the, to this day, whenever they hear the soundtrack or play the game, it brings it all back to them. Like, you know, I really feel like that's a, such a fantastic thing. It's a real reference point to go. I guess yep. in the past you might have read a book together or watch TV together or whatever, but so many, you know, that thing where, you know, I think games are great and they bring people together and, you know, in the, in yes. the best way, you know, and I think that's, it, that's she, she'll already remember that till the day she dies. Like, yep, playing set yeah. with you playing Skyward Sword or whatever it is. I think that's just a brilliant thing. She will, I mean, look, there are probably going to be more Zelda and Mario games forever, essentially, unless, you know, something really unexpected happens. And she will, as an adult, play these games and look back and think, oh, I used to play these games with with my dad. Yeah, no, I think that's fantastic. I think that's absolutely fantastic. I mean, I I love that kind of aspect of it. Yes, and I love, yeah, I love these franchises now that stretch back 30, 40 years, which now we can with games, because, you know, that's how old they are. Uh, And that it's just lovely to enjoy something with your kid that you enjoyed when you were a kid. It's, right. it's no matter what it is. Yeah. Uh, second peach is we had a, we went to Palm Springs for a week in the middle of summer and it was really hot, but we had a great time. We just st- stood in a pool for 12 hours a day. <laughs> I know we've, we've Palm Springs a couple of times and like you just literally just stand in the pool for the entire time. Don't you? Yep. It's so hot. It's crazy. That's it. Yeah. It was, we got out there. It was, uh, it was 118 when we got out oh, there, God. which is just, you walk out of the car and you're like, Oh, um, and you're just, you're mad. You get outside and you're like, I hate this. I'm mad, I'm <laughs> angry. I don't want to be here. Um, and then you get in some air conditioning and you just hang out in the pool. It's, it was And also really, it's the really same at, at nighttime. It's the same temperature out practically. It's just about this. It never goes down with you, is it? It's the same at night. It, super humid, you know. It, it, it gets, it's like 90 at night or something. Yeah. It's like, it, it's not effectively cooler. No. I remember the first time we went out there in the summer, I was like, oh, it's a desert in summer. It'll be like 40 <laughs> degrees. No, it's like 120 during the day and like yeah. 90 at night. I, yeah. I remember that the first time we went out there in the summer, I brought like a sweater and I felt like a grade A moron when it got <laughs> to be that first night. And I was like, no, it's actually still way too hot. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, let's see, my final peach... We, we, we found a very, very nice farm box that is in our neighborhood, and it's the greatest farm box I've ever... I feel like I might have talked about this on the show. We got cantaloupes. We got a grape. We got, like think of grapes. We got an eggplant. It's not just a bunch of kale, and it's, uh, it's just a great little farm box. And every day, we, every week, we get it, and we pull out some weird new vegetable. It's like, oh, wow, we got a bunch of okra this week. Cool. Okay. Yeah, my wife just, just started going to a, a local farmer's market. We've never done it before. Like, she's just, she was just sold on it every Sunday. And you just get this less pl- plastic packaging. It's all cardboard or stuff you can throw away that's, that's going to be recycled. And, you know, it just kind yep. of feels like a, 
why didn't we do this before? Instead of going to Vons or Ralph's every time and getting yes. the veg, it's, you know, getting the veg, it's not that great. Like you go to the yep. farmer's place, it's just all stuff they picked out the ground that morning, probably. I don't know. You yeah, know, it's like and the, yeah. they they give eggs. We can get a dozen eggs with it, and these eggs are like it's that bright. Right. But honestly, British eggs were better than American eggs by really? a long shot. Oh my god, so much better. Uh, and uh, the these eggs are more like British eggs. They got those really deep yellow orange yolks. Right. And it's just they're oh they're they're great. Uh, thing that, the thing that we find yeah. most different about the bread in America is so different to the bread in the UK. Yes, like, absolutely. In the UK, it's you sweeter, get, you get right? good old sort of plain bread, no no sugar in it. Like here, it's just loaded with sugar. It's loaded with loads of yeah, crap. Yeah, it's terrible. It's such a difference in American bread to the UK. We just don't understand it. It's so you can't yeah. just get a bit of plain tasting bread that isn't doesn't taste sweet because it's got something. Yep. In it. It's uh, the, I, the oddest thing. I loved the the food in the UK. Like I, I had you know I'm sure there was some post war thing. Like probably in you know I don't know in the late fifties maybe it was pretty dire for a right. while or something when everything was boiled or whatever. But uh, honestly, I felt like most of the stuff we got, even in you know London, was fresh. It was a lot of it was local and or semi local or at least British. Um, and uh, I, I was always impressed with uh with the food but i think also you know london in the mid 2020s is is probably a culinary hub for you know by any comparison but even just going to the the supermarket the stuff there was generally pretty great i never understood why people would complain about it yeah, well, that's where you obviously didn't go to Scotland, did you? Because Scotland, I think Scotland's got the worst incidence of uh, heart disease in, in all of in all of Europe because it eats such shit in Scotland. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, so, I didn't uh, spend much much time in Scotland, yeah. <laughs> but but London, London was great. Yeah. No, it's fantastic. I mean, it's a great city. Like you say, it's very cosmopolitan. Isn't it? It's got everything there. Like you know, I guess so. Uh, no, I mean, I mean, we love the food in America. Just, it's the bread thing is odd. Just find it a little bit odd. Yes. You know. I mean, and also the thing where you have the waffles and the bacon, because waffles sauce is like a dessert. That's right. You put yeah. the bacon with it, which is not, and that's a bit strange. You know, yeah. and, you know all that kind of thing. And like, you, you, don't, you don't really put butter on bread. In a, in a sandwich, we'd have bread with butter and then something on, you know, like you don't put Always. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, you couldn't get an unbuttered sandwich. Yeah. No. Yeah, like it's something we do in the, the everyone, and you don't do it here. It's all just dry bread, right? Rachel, um, it's it's uh, the superior move. Yeah, <laughs> clearly, <laughs> tell, tell me if you agree with this. Rachel, at her work uh, one day, she had like a like a breakfast muffin, like a blueberry muffin or something like that, and she cut it open and put butter on it, and people looked at her like she was a crazy person, <laughs> and she's like, "What's wrong?" And they're like, "No, you do no, no." Yeah, we just like do that. Yeah, she was like, "You." You put butter on everything. Like you buttered my ham sandwich, and I put butter on this blueberry muffin, and this is like a crime. It, yeah, it's so good when you get like the half muffin Grilled. that they like throw on a grill yes. for a little bit, and then you put a little bit of butter on it. It's oh, the best. God. Anyway. All right, folks. Grant, thank you so much for being here. This has been a really lovely conversation. Um, is there where where can people? find you or is there anything in particular you want to plug well i'm on most things you know but i guess twitter's my main spot where i'm you can find me i've got an instagram account but i think instagram's for the youngsters and i'm probably just a bit too old for the youngsters so uh, my most of my people that follow me are on uh, twitter um at grant kirkhope and i can't really talk about anything i'm working on because you know well, i'm working on mario plus rabbit sparks of hope which is the new mario game i'm yeah. working on some other stuff but you can't as a video game you can never mention it so i can't for talk sure about it. But i've got yeah. i've actually got three indie movies coming out this year which is bizarre 
So I've got... Uh, oh, great. Oh. Yeah, I've got one called Shadows, which will be out soon. One called The Handler, which will be out a bit later. One called Bring Back Goldeneye, which is a kind of British comedy about a fictitious Goldeneye tournament. Nice. Um, and so, um, yeah, the two indie movies are uh, uh, Shadows and Handler by a director called Michael Matea Rossi, who's a kind of up-and-coming guy in L.A. right now. Uh, so I'm super happy to do those. So, um, yeah, so that's all I can talk about really right now. But I, all I can say is thank, well, you, for ask, thank you for asking me for on the, uh, to come and have a chat. It's been, very, it's been great fun. Yeah, I, I also realized that we didn't introduce you at all. <laughs> well, hello, I'm Greg Kirkhope. Yeah. <laughs> as, as standard for this show, this is not the first time we've gotten to literally the sign-off without having introduced someone. Uh, so. I'm just, I'm just yes. some random bloke, that's all right. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, man. Th thank you so much for taking the time. It was really great to to, to talk to you. It was a lot. No, fun. brilliant. Thanks for asking me. It's been, yeah. um, as I say, it's been great fun. Uh, folks back home, I hope you enjoyed this one. Uh, as always, hope you're vibing, thriving, and surviving. And there are no other catchphrases for the end of this show. Uh, everyone, be well. Goodbye. That's the end of the podcast. Bye. Late Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Knight, on Instagram at Leighton underscore Knight, or email us at LeightonKnight at gmail.com. <laughs>